Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. It's a blustery, flurry-filled afternoon in Chicago. Um, Thanksgiving is coming, and I hope you get time with your family and friends and you get to take a little space. Um, it's very hard in an outrage culture to think about blessings, and we have them, lots of them. As you know, I, I talk a lot about politics, but always try to do that as it relates to governing. You know, um, politics is a big part of the way we make decisions about how to govern, but governing is what matters. It's how we put our hand on the scale today to tip the balance towards a better tomorrow. But it can be exhausting. I mean, really exhausting. For example, uh, we, we haven't even counted every vote from the midterms yet, and already uh, here in Chicago, we're moving to municipal elections. And in Congress, the work of selecting new leadership has begun. And the next presidential election cycle is officially launched with Donald Trump once again, hoping hoping lightning is going to strike. Look, here's the thing. If, if the, the, the work of self-governing never stops, and if we think about that for a second, you know, we might try and be a little less breathless because you can't be sovereign and out of breath all the time running from outrage to outrage. We have to think about this not as a sprint, but as an unfolding process of education. We need to learn civics and history. We need to be able to consume careful policy analysis. We, we need to understand how public passion can and cannot help us move forward. Put differently, in each generation, we need to think about our democracy with the same care and seriousness that our founders did. That's how we preserve it, and that's how we build a better future. Government work is hard work if you do it well. And the 117th Congress, now in its lame duck session, rose to the challenge. And, and, and you know, as we go into Thanksgiving, I mean, President Biden and Congress passed and enacted the CHIPS Act, which is already rebuilding high-value American manufacturing. The infrastructure bill will rebuild our airports, our roads, our water systems. They'll expand broadband every household. The Inflation Reduction Act, oddly named for all that it does, um, not only will lower prescription drug costs, but it's accelerating the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources. Biden and the Congress, you know, they also began to restore the integrity of the federal courts. Americans, despite what the way we run our political campaigns, Americans want their government to do this hard work. And I personally, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I doubt the midterm results would have been as good had Congress failed to deliver. Now we have a new Congress, and very serious challenges remain. Are they going to be up to the task? Look, the democracy is still under attack, and if you doubt it, look at Ohio. Not today. We'll talk about Ohio again, but not today. The Supreme Court continues to pose a sectarian danger to our liberties. 
Um, the economy is still dangerously rigged to favor the already very rich over the rest of us. We have not moved forward to address our antiquated and failing immigration laws. We have allowed public education systems to become political props, much to the detriment of our children. That list goes on and on and on. And these are just the domestic challenges. This week in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, delegates from around the world convened the 27th Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework on Convention on Climate Change. That's COP, COP 27. Over the years, these meetings have led to, I think, real engagement and understanding of climate change, but very slow progress. Maybe the biggest step forward was at COP21, where 196 countries uh, adopted the Paris Climate Accords. Of course, a few years later, Donald Trump walked America away from that agreement. Climate conversations are complicated. And, you know, we don't always take the time to understand how complicated they are. Just Imagine Pakistan. Pakistan emits less than 1% of the world's greenhouse gases, but it has suffered massive flooding on a scale that the world's largest emitters of those gases, we in the United States and China, we have not suffered like that. What do countries that got rich by powering their economies on carbon owe to those who suffer the effects? It's a complicated question. And... um you know, we haven't figured out how to invent an entirely new economy based on a different kind of power. It's a lot harder than many imagine. I mean, just consider the progress we've made in the United States and how far we still have to go. I mean, U.S. renewable energy is the fastest growing segment in the energy market. Um, and we've added enormous amounts of renewable energy, but it doesn't keep up with population and economic growth. Consequently, we're using more oil and gas than ever. Fossil fuels are predicted to remain the major source of energy in the U.S. through at least 2050. So we have some complicated things we're going to have to do. And of course, crude oil and natural gas production are reaching record levels in the United States and their major export products to around the world. There's one more thing that makes this climate stuff so complicated. There are still billions of humans around the planet who live without power to light their homes, to refrigerate their food, to move them from employment or to and from employment opportunities. For them, the lack of power is a more pressing issue than climate change. So big, big, complicated global challenge. The United States could lead the way to a sustainable future or not, depends on whether we're up to the challenge. We were once. I mean, after the disastrous wars of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century at least, um, America led the creation of a new rules-based system of international relations that old imperial system, you know, where if you were strong, you could just take what the weak had and they would suffer from it. It was replaced by a set of widely shared rules. International boundaries uh, could no longer be changed by force without serious consequences. The seas were open to international trade. We set national boundaries at three miles offshore for everyone. Institutions like the UN and some international courts, the IMF, they were created to manage conflict and deliver growth. Today, all of that order is 
um, is under threat. Russia is the principal culprit, um, forcibly expanding its borders several times before its recent brutal effort to take Ukraine. But China also has rejected this order. President Xi brushes off the concept of international waters set by law in favor of his own reading of historical spheres of influence to claim sovereignty for, for China, at least over the whole South China Sea. And meanwhile, as the dangerous erosion of rules-based order gains strength, countries like North Korea and Iran inch ever closer to having nuclear weapons. Look, there are, what, 7 billion humans on the planet now, and they are praying their leaders will find a way forward through these terrible challenges. Many are hoping America will once again lead the world to a safer and more prosperous place. This is what the hard work of governing and leading is about. But we have to look in the mirror to see if we're up to the task. <clears throat> now that we have a new Congress, we should get to know them. Take a listen to what Republican Congressman James Comer, the incoming head of the House Oversight Committee, said. Paul, can you play this? This is an investigation of Joe Biden, the president of the United States, and why he lied to the American people about his knowledge and participation in his family's international business schemes. National security interests require the committee conduct investigation, and we will pursue all avenues, avenues that have long been ignored. Committee Republicans have uncovered evidence of federal crimes committed by and to the benefit of members of the president's family. These include conspiracy or defrauding the United States, wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, violations of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, tax evasion, money laundering, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. The Biden family's business dealings implicate a wide range of criminality from human trafficking to potential violations of the Constitution. In the 118th Congress, this committee will evaluate the status of Joe Biden's relationship with his family's foreign partners and whether he is a president who is compromised or swayed by foreign dollars and influence. I want to be clear. This is an investigation of Joe Biden, and that's where the committee will focus in this next Congress. Okay, there you have it. And uh, some of you heard me lose my temper on this radio show uh, months ago when somebody called in and said, this is what they're going to do. It's a vengeance Congress. I've talked, you know, the beginning last couple minutes all about the big issues the world is facing, our country is facing. But these guys who couldn't be bothered to look at the grifting, self-dealing of the Trump administration. They didn't care about foreign government spending at his hotels. They don't care today about the Saudi golf tournament set up apparently to funnel money to Donald Trump through his golf courses. But now with all the challenges we face, they intend to race to the bottom as fast as they can, as fast as they can. We know better. So, Let's pause and reflect on the really good work that we have done, the really important work that needs to be done. And if we can avoid the emotional swamp that clouds judgment and drags us into petty fights, you know what? We're better than this, and we have better things to do together.
All right, I have an, elect, an eclectic show planned for you today. Uh, Helen Schiller, who is a lifelong radical organizer, has written a, a book about her battles. It's really interesting. She'll join us. The brilliant journalist John Nichols is coming back to help us understand what we can learn from this past election cycle. And I thought I would uh, change things up a bit, and I asked Steve Sheffy um, to talk to us from his particularly democratic and Jewish perspective about the GOP bigotry and how Israel gets used in American politics. It's kind of interesting. But first, we're going to be joined by a very interesting Chicago alderwoman to talk about, um, you know, issues of community and our city in ways that I think will be interesting, even if you're listening in Waukesha. Maria Haddon represents Chicago's 49th ward in the city council. Four years ago, she won a tough election against the longtime incumbent, Joe Moore, uh, to become the first, I think this is right, the first black queer woman elected city council. Maria, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me on the show today. Yeah, and you know, um, I've watched you and listened to you and seen some of your work. I think you're very smart. Um, so uh, I'm going to challenge you a little bit while we're here, if that's okay. Oh, a quiz, a quiz. Okay, I'm ready. Well, you know, our audience stretches well beyond Chicago. It reaches good chunks of Wisconsin and Michigan, and the online listeners are all over the country. So mm-hmm. as we talk, forgive me, I may interrupt occasionally just to be sure we've given sufficient background to people who don't, you know, aren't familiar sure. with us. Um, but before we get started on, on everything, because there's so many people who aren't in Chicago, how would you say Chicago's reputation and Chicago's reality differ? Mm. Um, we can go, I'll have to pick an aspect for that. Um, so before running uh, for Alder Person and serving on city council, um, I actually spent, um, I spent a decade actually working throughout the the country, um, mainly in the Midwest and South, um, with community uh, organizations, local governments. And so um, it was always interesting to be coming from Chicago, um, to be helping to organize a community or do a training with local government around good government or participatory budgeting um, and have people say, what does Chicago know about good government? So um what does Chicago know about accountability and transparency, right? This was a, a frequent side eye, especially when I was in the, 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 the South of people, mm-hmm. kinda, you know, hey, why, why would someone from Chicago know anything about this? Um, so I could say to some degree, um, when it comes to government, uh, I think it's safe to say that Chicago has a reputation for um, corrupt mm-hmm. politics, for machine politics, um, for manipulation, for lack of transparency, and for elected officials going to jail. One, that's one thing that I could say uh, reputation-wise. The reality um, is while those are some of the high-profile things that um, are part of our, our political uh, history and, and present, um, Chicago is a hard-working city with a lot of very excellent public servants. So whether they be an elected or um, or employee um, public role, um, this city works in spite of right, um, in spite of some of the the challenges that we've had with the kind of machine politics and corruption. Um, this city functions at such a high level, 
um, despite so many of our challenges. And I'm inspired every day by how many of our public servants um, give their all and have such belief in this city. Um, and in some ways, I think our reality is um, we like being a little bit of an underdog. Um, and I think that's a, a big role we play in the scope of our American cities. That's such an interesting answer, Maria. I, you know, I normally if I, I would have expected something like, well, you know, everybody says we're really, really dangerous and we're just not that dangerous. People live good, safe lives all over the city. But you went to the core of our reputation um, for our politics, which I think is really, really interesting. There's a lot of aspects to choose from, and I think the yeah. the one around the one around violence and gun violence is a is a very it's the one that everybody already always puts in the paper, and I feel like we always have yep. to speak to. But Chicago is a lot more than than what the media headlines have to say, and there are so many aspects where we do have reputations beyond that, um, mm-hmm. and ways that people engage and think of our city. Um, so yeah. So I I as you can imagine as an ex-alderman, I love talking to uh, aldermen and love talking to them about their communities first. So tell everybody about the 49th Ward. What do you love about it? What makes it special? And then what are you trying to improve? Sure. Um, So the 49th Ward is um, the uh, northeasternmost ward or district in the city of Chicago. It primarily um, includes the neighborhood of Rogers Park, and we have a little bit of the Westridge neighborhood as well. Um, For those not super familiar with our geography, our eastern boundary is Lake Michigan. Our northern boundary is the city of Evanston, uh, homes in Northwestern. Um, Our southern boundary is Devon Avenue, and our western boundary is mainly Ridge Avenue and a little bit of western. Um, we are um, about 2.2 square miles. We're one of the, I think we're second or third most dense um, neighborhoods. Um, so uh, if you came to uh, the 49th Ward and walked around, um, you have, one, really great access to transit, the four red line stops, some major bus lines, um, uh, a very walkable and active trans-friendly neighborhood. Um, you'd have a hard time finding car- parking for your car because of our density. Um, but you'd also notice our built infrastructure. It's a lot of, lot of multi-unit residential buildings, several really strong commercial corridors. And um, it's a lot of those physical characteristics that can make um, one of the things I love about the 49th Ward, which is living in it sometimes feels like you're living in a small town. Um, from being able to just walk to my local market um, to being able to traverse one end of the ward to the next in 30 to 40 minutes, right, um, to really getting to know your neighbors um, and to having lots of great parks. Um, you could think of us as a small town. Um, we're known for our diversity, but it's not just our racial diversity. Um, we are, as of this census, a ward that once again most closely reflects the demographics of the entire city of Chicago, um, so having no majority race, but we uh, have a ton of ethnicities, uh, more than 80 languages spoken. Um, we match our neighboring uh, ward of the 50th ward for, for that diversity because our long time standing as an affordable place to live with good transit has also made us home to many waves of immigrants and refugees over the decades. Um, so a wonderful place to live, um, a super gay-friendly area. Um, so um, uh, we've I got estimates about 20% of our 49th Ward residents identify as LGBTQ um, and just a fantastic community to represent. 
um, very independent in our politics and very uh, progressive leading. Yeah, our city, like every city, has huge challenges in it. But I've always felt, and listening to you makes me, uh, 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 reminds me that I was right, some of the strengths that we bring to these big citywide challenges are just the strong communities that are in the city and this sense that we are, um, you know, that our neighborhoods are strong, that we have, mm-hmm. as you say, places that feel like they're our own city, but they're really part of this bigger um, bigger metropolis. Mm-hmm. The strong identities um, and the strong community identities that you find all over Chicago um, help us in tough times. Um, so learn that firsthand um, as, you know, we have been dealing with this pandemic. So like in March of 2020, um, um, after leaving, like what would be my last meeting at City Hall for, for like two years, um, I sat down with my team in my office and as we looked at what we might be facing with a possible shutdown, right? Um, we were able to call upon volunteers, other kind of community partners, and were able to set up a Rogers Park community response team. And within a week, we had like 400 volunteers just from neighbors. We had a 24 hour um, hotline that people helped us set up. Um, we spent 18 months with hundreds of volunteers doing uh, grocery delivery, uh, feeding upwards of 400 people a week um, for several months, um, doing pickup supplies for uh, seniors and other um, uh, medically vulnerable folks during the early days of the pandemic. And this large mass community mobilization was made possible because of a strong community with a history of mobilizing and a practice and when we think about functioning, helping healthy democracies, it's that practice of working together, of being able to mobilize, whether it be for mutual aid or for disaster response or for, um, you know, a local school council race. Right. Um, these are really important things that I look to foster um, and continue to nurture so that we can continue to be a resilient neighborhood. And it's the type of thing at each of the ward levels and neighborhood levels that when fostered and nurtured also makes us a more resilient city. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful thing, and it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, one of the job descriptions of a great local elected official, a great local alderman, if you will, city council person anywhere, is being a good organizer, is being able to create the on-ramps for for people in the community to contribute. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I would agree because it's, um, you know, from your experience, um, it's a, uh, and for folks not, not super familiar or haven't lived in Chicago, people can uh, expect a lot from their older person, right? Um, uh, and it's a not just, it's not possible for the older person to be able to fulfill all the roles. But I think one of our core jobs is being a connecting point for our communities and being a connection point and problem solver for our communities to other parts of the city, right? And so being able to organize people, being able to set up those networks, um, but organizing people, resources, and information um, and being able to do it well um, definitely helps um, our office and myself to be um, a better um, servant to the community. Yeah, and it... and. and when you do that, you focus on the assets of the community, not the problems, because you're not organizing 
the things a community doesn't have. You're organizing the talents it does have in order to in order to make a difference. And and this exactly. focus on assets is something that you know uh, a Northwestern professor John McKnight used to write a lot about um, mm-hmm. uh, before he passed. But it's very you know asset building in communities is a is a real thing, and it makes for stronger communities everywhere. Well, and especially right now, like I, I'm not sure what your experience has been in, in your own community or what you've observed, but um, people people are struggling. And a lot of that um, kind of psychological and emotional um, distress that we're in um, collectively is because of um, so many overwhelming negative things. Um, puns are tough for a lot of my constituents and a lot of people in the city. Economically, they're difficult. Um, my small businesses who who really made it through um, the tough times are still still struggling with recovery. Um, schools are going a lot better this year, so a lot of our students and families and and school staff are doing better. But like there are there are difficult times. There's a lot of uncertainty and constantly facing that uncertainty and those types of psychological challenges are troubling. And so it's even more important that we focus on right? Kind of this asset base. It's not just being positive and idealistic. Um, I see it personally as a very pragmatic approach to this is a problem we've got. What are the resources that we have? What do we know? What are we going to do about it? And trying to continually keep that engine going of what are we going to do? What are our action steps? Um, it's one a thing that I personally use to keep myself motivated, right? Um, and to keep myself going. Um, that I've used in other professional and personal spaces, but it's also being that kind of engine or generator for our community that helps us keep moving forward, even when times are tough. And I think it's a key, um, like, kind of perspective to have um, for resilience. And the contrary um, is a lot of what we're combating in sometimes social media spaces um, or in oppositional spaces. Spaces, or even can be overwhelming from, from media spaces, is being told what's wrong all the time can put people in a very fear mindset and a fear-based mindset and a mindset of nothing's, nothing's going right, nothing's going to change. And sometimes that can make a person overwhelmed to the point of inertia. Now, now yeah. they feel like they can't do anything. Well, they can, and we can talk about some of those things in a minute. Um, but first, I'm talking with Maria Haddon, who represents Chicago's 49th Ward in our city council. And we need to take a quick break because we're at the bottom of the hour. Um, but we'll be back in just a minute. You want to stay with us. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Welcome back. I'm talking with Chicago Alderman Maria Haddon about... Um, her community and our city. And um, Maria, I, I, one of the reasons I'm delighted you're here is I wanted to talk to an alderman who is not running for mayor about the, you know, about the issues that are going to face the city in that race. You know, um, yeah, because um, because you you have a, a perspective of somebody inside. But you don't have to be campaigning on these topics in the same way. Sure. So you have a little more freedom and I, and to I answer. And I haven't endorsed anybody either and, and don't plan to for, uh, for some time. So. Okay. Okay. Um, but I don't want to talk about the politics at the moment. I want to talk about the, the um, 
you know, that's sort of how we deal with the, the governing questions. Mm-hmm. Right. So so I mean, one of the biggest questions facing the mayor right now is the uh, public um, uh, concerns about crime and violence. What, what what would you say are the ways we should think about that, um, both in terms of policing, but also broader than policing? Sure. Um, we can start with the policing piece. I think one of one of the biggest um, solutions that we have yet to see explained in a in a way that most of us can understand, or even explained in a way that city council has asked to see it, is what are we doing with our staffing? So we know that um, a few things. We know that historically, uh, the city of Chicago has has funded kind of more police officers per capita than some of our major city counterparts. We also know that we're currently down um, a lot of staffing um, over these last couple of years and have been struggling to kind of fill those positions. And so there's a big question about with the resources that we have, how are we utilizing them? Where are um, communities seeing police officers? What are the roles that they are tasked with doing? Um, there's been a big push, and I think, um, you know, for, for those who want to see changes in our police aspects of public safety, a supported push in getting back to that, that kind of feed officer, community-based um, people who are more in touch with their community. And we're, we're really hurting on that, I can tell people. Um, and at least communities that, that I represent, um, we're struggling to, to get to that piece. There's been a lot of shifting uh, over these last couple of years of special teams and, and repositioning of folks. So there's all these questions around how are we utilizing our police resources in a way that's most effective and not just um, uh, making us feel safe, but achieving some of the things that people align with safety. And I think that needs to be answered. So it's not being answered. Um, outside of policing, um, the broader pieces around public safety, there's, there's been some, some good progress, I'd say, through this administration on um, more investments in, in mental health, right? More investments in public health. However, um, I still think it's not quite in the direction that we need to be going as a city. Um, time will tell, but there's a, a still focus of um, maybe this debate on what does the city need to take responsibility and control for? What, what some of us want to see in expansion of public health and wellness to encompass and be able to more directly address our holistic views of, of public safety. So whether it's getting at root causes of violence, right, um, having trauma-informed approaches, um, having appropriate diversions from the criminal justice system for folks who um, might need mental health support first. And um, we've been pushing as a city uh, more of these things into um, kind of private control, um, even though they've been with some great nonprofit partners. And I still think that we need to double down on some of our public investments in order to be able to have more accountability to our neighbors, to our constituents, and bring more service to, to the neighborhood. So we've had a unique opportunity to do this. There's been some good progress. I think we need to go further um, and, and make it public. Okay. Um, let's turn from crime to schools. Uh, Chicago, um, the state of Illinois, and at the 
I, I can't tell uh, who supported it and who didn't really, but we ended up with a law that's creating a 23 person elected school board, which is um, not typical of elected school boards. It's much bigger than most elected school boards around the country. Um, and um, the board is going to be stood up in the midst of an enormous fiscal uh, disaster for the schools. What should a new mayor do? The, um, I'll speak to one aspect that you brought up, the, the funding and the fiscal disaster piece. We, we need a mayor that's going to support a school board and make sure that our elected school board can be a fierce advocate for Chicago public schools at the state level. We need the state to pay their real share of our CPS costs, and we need to have that ramp um, escalated. I think right now they're, I think it's something like maybe they're on um, the schedules to have them paying kind of their full share of, of CPS funds by like 2050 or, or something like that, um, and it, it's just too far away. So I'm hoping um, as we move into this space that we've got a mayor who can provide and support and make sure that the school board can be the fiercest advocates because really what we're doing is expanding. We're expanding the team of people who can be fierce advocates for public education and for the school children in the city of Chicago. And I think that's the best way uh, any mayor should do it, to not try and set up an adversarial relationship, to not get into fights of kind of power and control, but to work on building a team of support and expanding our reach Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, and what do you do about the decline in enrollments? I mean, part of the reasons why there's a financial problem is there are so many fewer students than there were a few years ago, and the declines are continuing. You know, I was having an interesting conversation with um, some folks from a nonprofit regional planning organization yesterday. And um, they're working on some assessments of how Chicago can improve its planning. Um, I feel like from, from the position I'm in as an older person, we're really kept in the dark um, from our city's planning side of what we should be expecting. Um, in the time that I've lived here in Chicago, um, I moved here in 2004, I see a city that's been largely reactive and at best responsive um, but not proactive in planning. So are we opening schools? Are we closing schools? Um, everything's based on what we're seeing now or what we saw two years ago. Um, we are seeing declining enrollment for a few reasons, and we need to understand what they are. Some is population loss, but some is just changes in families, right? And it leads me to questions that I try to answer in development decisions and planning in the 49th Ward. Um, one of our issues is the affordability of the city for families. Right. So for people who are having children, who have school age children, it's not just a matter of making sure our schools are competitive so that they want to send their kids there. But it's also are we making our city um, habitable and affordable for people who are raising children? Um, so I think that's that's another factor um, that we have to address. That's not something that CPS can address alone. Right. CPS and elected school board. Um, they should be focusing on making sure that there is consistency and quality um, at all of our schools. And, and we've got some great neighborhood schools in Rogers Park. 
and also from the city side, we should be solving the issues of affordability, of safety of amenities, like what are, what kind of, we should be top notch in our services. Um, people should want to live in Chicago. And I think that's the, the bigger answer um, to our declining enrollment and to not um, be so quick to have a school board or CPS executives that make, um, you know, long lasting uh, decisions with long lasting impacts, like we saw in kind of those broad school closures under the Emanuel administration, um, or even, you know, 10, 12 years before that, where we were at um, high enrollments in a lot of our schools. And so CPS decided to build a bunch of annexes, right? (laughs) Or new Mm -hmm. buildings, like there was that time Mm -hmm. period too, that it's like, might this be a little short-sighted? Like, should we, should we be making such huge capital decisions um, based on a couple of years of data? Like, what's really the longer view? And how can we start maybe building and planning our school system based on our, our actuals, um, our projections, but also our goals um, and being able to push for goals? Um, so instead of right now, the system we've got set up, it's a lot of our schools just fighting for enrollment with one another. Well, so, Maria, you're pushing, it's interesting, you're pushing for a radical transparency that Chicago's rarely ever had because, look, in crowded times, parents are not interested in what's going to happen five years down the road. They want extra space so their kids aren't jammed together. And you're saying if we can really make sure that everybody understands the scenarios for growth and the plans for our schools, they would make those trade-offs because because they're complicated. It affects taxes. It affects um, what their kids are going to have a couple years later. Especially if we're getting the services right. Yep. That's that's very interesting. So on the topic of affordability – you recently announced plans in your ward to develop 88 units of housing for families earning families of four earning, I think, a maximum of $62,500 and 88 units. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, and 22 units for families who are four who own are earning only about 31,000 a year. That's an enormous accomplishment because, um, Look, despite enacting what's called the Affordable Requirements Ordinance, which was meant to spur the development of affordable housing, Chicago's affordable housing problems continue to grow. So how did you accomplish that in your community, where, after all, there is no scarce, no free land to build on anywhere? Um, And how do we help um, this affordability problem citywide? Um, so, one, if I had some wood to knock on nearby, I'd knock on wood. So we'll count the accomplishment when we get to cut the ribbon. <laughs> so we'll count the accomplishment when we get to cut the ribbon. Um, but it is, um, I'll say, uh, you, you mentioned a few things like us not really having available space to build on here in the 49th Ward. And, of course, um, I, I'll mention another thing that isn't going to be obvious to folks. Um, but we don't have... Um, I don't have really available uh, TIF dollars, that's our tax increment finance dollars, or some of the other more readily available economic development tools um, and funding mechanisms that you might find in, um, you know, the the West Loop, right, Um, or, um, you know, Ravenswood area right now. So without some of those tools, it is hard to attract and complete developments. But I'll say um, from, from 
the time from before taking office to now, um, and as a member on our housing and real estate committee, um, I've worked with housing advocacy groups. I've worked with tenants associations and have been a very vocal supporter and been a part of legislation that is pushing towards this affordable housing goals. Like we need affordable housing for working families and individuals and for our um, and like for people at all stages of life. Um, so I think being very forward about these goals, um, showing yourself as an older person who wants these types of developments can go a long way. Because uh, there are several older people who, believe it or not, um, don't invite these types of developments to their community. Um, so working with that, um, kind of doing that networking, uh, certainly helps us in making these connections. Um, and we've also been working on another project. We completed a corridor development initiative with Metropolitan Planning Council. Um, for um, the only two city-owned uh, kind of vacant lots that we have, and it's in a, a similar area, um, on kind of the kitty corner of that area. And so I think our work in kind of working on economic development and real community-based things that are focused on development without displacing existing residents um, is what's really helped us to create this opportunity. So I look forward to working with this Housing for All team and our community members as we work to bring it to fruition. Yeah, it's it's remarkable work. You know, we don't have a we don't have an economy where people can make money by building housing with very low rental, uh, you know, rental price points. If we did, then we'd build a lot more housing that's much more affordable. So Mm -hmm. long term, we have to find a way to reduce the cost of housing and then we'll get a whole lot more at more price points that are. Um, help. That require, yeah, that require less special right. financing and government support. Um, uh, Maria, we need to take one more break before we're done, um, and then we'll come back and talk about a couple more city issues. And I'm going to want to know uh, your favorite restaurant, your favorite music venue for people who want to visit your, uh, y- your community. So think about that during the break. We're going to be talking with Maria Haddon when we come right back. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, it's um, understandable if those of you who are listening out there have been confused by all the politics talk for the last year as we came to the midterms. So this conversation with Chicago Alderman Maria Haddon should help unconfuse you. Governing is not only about politics. In fact, it's only a tiny bit about politics. It's about hard work and thinking about how you make a community a better place. And I, I like Maria and I did not talk before she came on this, this radio station with you. And I've thrown out questions about crime, about uh, affordable housing, about community development, um, about the future of a complicated city. And one of 50 aldermen in a city is able to answer it pretty articulately and think pretty hard about it. And Maria, I am grateful to you for helping um, rebuild an understanding uh, that's been you know, lost here, that governing and politics aren't the same thing, that politics is a means to better government. And that the, the work is hard work, and it's got to get done. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point, so I appreciate you making it. Um, all right, let's talk about the city council. How is it working these days? You serve on some committees. Are the committees working? Um, it, 
is there appropriate staffing in the in, in the committees? Um, and, uh, does Chicago need a charter that helps organize a city council as a as a truly you know legislative body that has the staff and the data it needs? Mm. Um. You know, you'll take this with, um, um, it's got to be fun to, for you. You'll take this with the perspective of me having served three and a half years, um, in city council. So, um, I only have this, this term right in this class to compare it to. Um, so I'll give you as, as best an answer here as I can. Um, I will say I definitely think Chicago needs a city charter. Um, and not just for the organization and proper resourcing of the city council. But to give guidance and affirmatively say what our city is for, what are our values, what are our goals, what are our principles. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the years that I've been here, I see um, so much of our maybe sometimes wheel spinning or kind of backtracking on issues or our our failures at addressing um, um, and maybe meeting some basic service needs um, as a process problem um, as you know, to your point about politics and governing being separate, I feel like so much of our governance is driven by politics. Um, it, it just is. And I feel like a city charter could really help to put us all on the same page um, as a small example. What are we doing with um, the department of environment? Right. Um, so when we have a, a very clear need um, or maybe some very clear principles and, and, and missions uh, that we could have in a charter of providing, you know, the, the safest, cleanest, most sustainable, enriching environment for residents of the city of Chicago um, with a clear mission and a clear mandate. We should be organizing our entire city, all of our programs and policies um, towards the um, outcomes that would make that mission possible. And I don't see a lot of that. Um, politics gets in the way. Um, new administrations come in and have different priorities based on what they think, right? Um, they think they've got a mandate to do something. And even when they're positive things that, that I think move us forward, um, sometimes then they're just undone by something else, right? Um, we need something to help be um, a, a touchstone, um, you know, that we can all point to. And most importantly, that Chicagoans can point to as some form of things that they agree on to direct their elected officials, to direct a mm-hmm. legislative body. Um, mm-hmm. You know, committee structure wise, I serve on eight committees. Um, half of them work very well. Half of them don't really work at all. <laughs> Um, right. And I mean, literally like, 50%, which is an improvement to when I was there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so some of them, I, I think work very well. Um, uh, I'm on, um, uh, tech, uh, you know, committee on, um, kind of, um, uh, capital kind of, um, uh, sorry, um, economy and kind of, uh, social and capital, Technological and uh, Development, uh, Chair of the mm-hmm. ADUS. That's a, a great committee, works well, very functional, orderly, timely. Um, committee on Housing and Real Estate, our Committee on Zoning, Buildings, and Landmarks. Um, you know, these are some of the committees that I sit on that are that are super mm-hmm. functional. Um, I think appropriately staffed, um, and we cover important topics. And then there are committees like the Committee on Education, um, where um, I... 
I don't actually even technically sit on that committee, but have a lot of work that I've put through it and legislation that mm-hmm. I've supported. Um, and the city council's committee on education just met for the first time in uh, months and months, I think maybe seven months, um, and met under the acting chair um, because we haven't replaced the chair yet. Um, there's a committee on um, immigration that as we're in the midst of a crisis with asylum seekers being sent where we're trying to appropriately um, support and welcome people um, and wondering what the city's overall plan is going to be. This is a a topic we should be convening um, that committee meeting to have hearings, public hearings and discussions, because I get way too many questions from constituents about what we're doing. How can we help? How can we support? What's the long-term plan? Um, and right now, there there's no communication on that. So it's about 50-50 um, on how now, that Maria, do you, you must have studied my old history to give that answer, because I, as an alderman, uh, sponsored the legislation to create the committee of the environmental department that's been now disappeared and led that committee when it was first started. And my first year as an alderman was spent trying to get the education committee to have one meeting, even though there were four strikes in five years and the schools were a mess. (laughs) Not much has changed. Not much has changed. Oh, wow. No, a lot has changed. A lot has changed and for the better. All right, we only have a couple minutes left, and I gave you fair warning. I know you have a lot of competition for this, but tell people who are visiting the 49th Ward, the northeast corner of Chicago, where they should go eat, and do you have music venues you love or things they should do when they get there? Sure. Um, It is a tough competition, so don't take this as an exclusive list. Um, But, um, you know, we've got this fantastic uh, theater on Morse Avenue, right off the Morse Red Line stop just east, called the Rhapsody Theater. The Rhapsody Theater uh, just reopened a few months ago. It was uh, formerly known as the main stage and formerly known, some of you might know it as the Morris Theater. But as the Mm -hmm. Rhapsody Theater right now, they are going to have a great show, um, um, uh, holiday shows, jazz music. They do chamber music and they do magic. Um, So some fun entertainment for the whole family there. Um, They've got a great restaurant. Um, you can stop into um, Le Piano on Glenwood around the corner. Um, you think you you think you're in the French Quarter. Um, so live music um, nightly, uh, fantastic uh, small plates menu, great cocktails. Um, Rogers Park Social um, down the street as well, great cocktail lounge. And then of course you can't miss you can't go wrong if you head up to Howard Street um, for just a diversity of food um, from Kamai. Um, Vietnamese cuisine, right, to good-to-go Jamaican. Um, so just to name a few, um, you can eat around the world here in the 49th Ward and definitely, um, you know, stop by some great cultural venues as well. All right. That's going to be the last word. Maria, I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Yes, me as well. And thank you for, thank you for inviting me on. Okay. All right, everybody. That is the Alderman of Chicago's 49th Ward, Maria Haddon. Um, an example of like, what does it take to be in local government in a big city? Um, we're going to take a break for the news uh, and then something very different when we come back. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Steve Sheffy has been active in Democratic and Jewish politics for more than 30 years. His newsletter, the Chicagoland Pro-Israel Political Update, comes out every Sunday. 
it's always been good. But this election cycle, I thought it was particularly fabulous. And I wanted to introduce him to all of you and, and get him to join us. Steve, welcome. Thank you very much, Edwin. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's been a long time since we've seen each other in person. But as you know, I've been an admirer of yours for literally decades. Thank you. Steve, it's a mutual admiration club. Hey, will you tell everybody about your newsletter? What made you start doing it and why you think it's still important? Sure. Um, I began the newsletter in 2006 when Dan Seals was running against Mark Kirk for Congress in the district where I live. And many people were exaggerating Kirk's importance. He was good on Israel, but many people were exaggerating his importance and taking some of what Seals said out of context. And I thought it was important for people to know the truth. I thought it was important for someone to speak up and talk about what it really means to be pro-Israel and to prevent people from demagoguing it and using it for their own political advantage. That's where the newsletter began, and it grew after that when Obama ran for president. It was almost a similar dynamic. Um, he, He was also unfairly disparaged on his views on Israel, and it grew and grew after that. The Iran deal, I took a stand on that. And as time has gone on, it grew from a local newsletter to a national and even international newsletter. I have mm-hmm. subscribers all across the United States, as well as Israel, Great Britain, Canada, Mexico. And for some reason, one guy in Denmark, I have no idea why he's on the list, but glad to have him. And I really just, I try to provide a service to people and people seem to like it. Well, you know, I love a good Chicago export product, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's gotten the attention it deserves. But, but starting, I mean, I guess this is um, for years, the GOP has, has tried to weaponize support for Israel, right? Accusing more, most recently Democrats of blocking funding for Iron Dome, the missile defense system that Israel relies on, and for other supposed failures. You've really done more than anybody to sort of reject those claims and to lay out the facts for everybody. Yes, I think it's really important. The the Republicans realize that aside from Israel, they have nothing with which to appeal to Jewish voters because Jews reject their agenda. I mean, the polling shows Jews are pro-choice, the overwhelming majority. Jews support democracy, the overwhelming majority. They've got nothing except possibly for Israel. But since Democrats are good, if not better on Israel than Republicans, Republicans basically make up stuff about Democrats. You mentioned Iron Dome, which is a great example. The Democratic, 96% of all Democrats voted for the emergency funding for Iron Dome in September of 2021, 96%. That's pretty good. And even among the progressive caucus, 90% of the Progressive Caucus voted for Iron Dome. I mean, that should be, that's a very good percentage. So why wasn't the Iron Dome supplemental authorized and passed by Congress right after that? Because in the Senate, Rand Paul, a Republican, blocked the funding for six months. You don't hear about that from Republicans, but it was actually Rand Paul, the Republicans, who delayed it for six months. The Democrats passed it immediately. Democratic support for Israel is overwhelming. You can just look at the votes in Congress and you can see again and again. President Obama 
his memorandum of understanding with Israel entered into in his last year as president provided more military assistance to Israel than any president previously. So Democrats have a very, very strong record on Israel. There's a reason that there are almost no Jewish Republicans in Congress and that near and yet about roughly in the 30s, um, a good number of Jewish Democrats, because the Democratic Party is the natural home of Jewish Americans. And that's the way it's going to that's the way it has been. And that's the way it will be. Recent polling shows that 74 percent of Jewish Americans voted Democratic in the recent midterms. And that's a very strong percentage. Republicans just aren't picking up Jewish voters because Jewish voters know that the Republican agenda is not their agenda. And this goes, I think, well beyond Israel, but to a question of values. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, Jewish values are much more aligned with those of the Democratic Party. The Republicans, the Republican agenda is essentially tax cuts for the very wealthy and corporate deregulation. The problem Republicans have is that if they're going to uh, basically do the bidding of the wealthiest 1% of Americans, even with vote suppression, even with gerrymandering, that's still not going to get them anywhere close to a majority. So what they do is appeal to the worst instincts of Americans. They appeal to xenophobia, to anti-Semitism, to racism, and they try to win uh, and bigotry and try to win on that basis because instead they want... They don't want voters to blame them and their economic policies. They want voters to blame people who look different, who think different, and some Americans fall for it. And that's that's really their agenda. Fortunately, Jewish Americans don't fall for it. There's a small percentage that do. But for the most part, as I said before, 74 percent of Jews vote Democratic in the midterms because our values are freedom of religion. We benefit when there's freedom of religion. And that means if people want to have an abortion, they should have an abortion. Someone else's religious beliefs should not be imposed on people who believe it's okay to have an abortion. No one's saying you have to, but if you need one, you should be able to have one. And that should be a decision between a woman and her doctor, not the government. The government does not need to be in the room when those decisions are made. Democracy is a Jewish value. History has shown that we tend to do better in democratic societies, and we tend to do worse, in some cases, much worse, under undemocratic or fascist societies. And Biden was right. There's a segment of the Republican Party that is semi-fascist, and the rest of the Republican Party, aside from Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, are not standing up to them. And as long as that continues, Jews are going to continue to vote Democratic. Yeah, let's talk about... um the rise in hate crimes across America, including new levels of anti-Semitism. You've been clear about not, not just the differences in the approaches of the parties from this, but really the culpability that Republicans have had. And, 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 and it isn't just the Christian nationalist right, although I guess their anti-Semitism somehow is more subtle than their hatred of Arabs. Both are in, unconscionable. But I, I mean, talk about the, the rise of anti-Semitism and the right and how they how they express it and wh- how dangerous it is. Well, we've seen um, a huge increase in anti-Semitism and most anti- most of the violent anti-Semitism is coming from the right. The Tree of Life shooter, um, his manifesto is very right wing. Other right wing Semitism is. Right-wing anti-Semitism is far more deadly and violent. I mean, when you look at those guards at our synagogues, 
they're not there to protect us from people trying to smuggle Ben and Jerry's ice cream in or something like that. They're there to protect us from right-wing violent extremists. That's where the violence comes from. And the huge difference between the Democratic and Republican parties is that whereas Democrats marginalize and condemn anti-Semitism when it arises within the Democratic Party, Republicans elect them to high office. I mean, just literally this week, the Republicans reelected Kevin McCarthy as their leader in the House. Before the 2018 elections, McCarthy ran an ad featuring three prominent Jewish Americans um, who contributed and saying that they were trying to buy the election. He never apologized for that when he ran that tweet, never apologized. Emmers, who was just um, elected the number three in the Republican Party, ran similar advertisements. He has never apologized. Steve Scalise, the number two in the Republican Party, just reelected, previously described himself as, quote, David Duke without the baggage. That's not a good thing, in my opinion. And, of course, Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump, the leader of the Republican Party, twice nominated for president of the, of the United States by the Republican Party, has engaged in one anti-Semitic trope after another, over and over again. And there's nothing comparable on the Democratic side. You'll find nothing like that from Joe Biden. Nothing like that from Nancy Pelosi. Nothing like that from Steny Hoyer. That's the big difference between the two parties. And when, you know, the worst form of anti-Semitism you can talk about is it worse from the right, is it worse from the left? I would argue that the worst form of anti-Semitism is government-sponsored anti-Semitism because no one is more powerful than the government. And when you've got the president of the United States saying that there were very fine people on both sides after the march in Charlottesville, when they were calling, when they were people with tiki torches were marching and chanting, Jews will not replace us. That's completely unacceptable. And that is a clear signal. I mean, when the government condones it, it's a real problem. And that's not just a problem for Jews, it's for all minorities. I want to make clear, I know we're talking about that Semitism, but the Republican Party also emboldens and condones hatred of other groups. And we have to realize, you know, hatred of Jews, hatred of blacks, hatred of Asians, hatred of immigrants, it's all cut from the same bigoted cloth. And we have to oppose all of it. Yeah, what did Donald Trump mean when he said, you know, Jews had better get in line before it's too late? Right. I mean, no, I mean, he speaks in a way, a part of the problem with Trump is that he's inarticulate. So you can, some of the things he says, you can interpret either way. But clearly, he's accusing us of dual loyalty. He's basically suggesting for some reason, Jews have to support Israel. For some reason, as if it's that he literally called it your country when he was speaking, um, when he was president to certain group, um, which is now we're Americans. We're just as American as anyone else's. And it's unclear what he meant. Is he threatening us? Is he suggesting that somehow we're not loyal enough? Is he suggest loyal to who? Loyal to him? Loyal to Israel? Um, there's really no good way to interpret that statement. And he does it again and again. You know, everyone, you know, sometimes people misspeak. I get that. Um, and I, you know, we can't be you, know, you don't want to hold someone under a microscope. But when someone does it again and again and again, as Trump has done and never apologizes, it's pretty clear that they are engaging in anti-Semitic rhetoric. And that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, on the topic of of dual loyalty, um, I, I actually don't see that amongst most American Jews. I think they are 
absolutely loyal to the United States of America, their home. Absolutely. And I, and one of the biggest pieces of evidence of that, um, uh, well, there's so many, but let's just talk about for years, the premier lobbying organization on behalf of Israel, something called APAC. Um, but recently, many American Jews have come to feel that that organization has walked away from Jewish values. Um, it's a hard topic to talk about, but you've talked about it. Right. I think I think it is an important topic. And I think that what's interesting is polling shows very recent polling done both in September and then in November um, of Jewish voters has shown that the vast about roughly slightly more than 90 percent of Jewish Americans do have a strong emotional attachment to Israel. And that's okay. I mean, anyone from any country can have or from not from any country could have an, an emotional attachment. But, and this is key, the vast majority believe that there's nothing inconsistent with supporting Israel and strongly criticizing Israel. And that criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. It's okay to criticize Israel. And this dual loyalty is a classic anti-Semitic trope that has been around way before Israel's existence. This idea that Jews are somehow some nefarious international group. And that's just not the case. I mean, we're... Back in, I mean, you and I are old enough to remember apartheid in South Africa, where people had dual, did people have dual loyalties? If they asked the United States to oppose the apartheid regime in South Africa in order to grant freedom for the African Africans who live there, no, it's not dual loyalty to care about what goes on in another country. Um, it's oftentimes it's in the best interest of the United States to support freedom and to support other countries and other allies throughout the world. There's no, it's not dual loyalty at all. And that's just, right, you don't have to go back that far, Steve. But most Americans are standing up for the people of Ukraine and saying we need to support them with point. military support. We mm -hmm. need to support them with uh, our public voice. We need to support them diplomatically. And that doesn't mean that, that any of us who stand for Ukraine are somehow less American. Of course not. And that's a great point, especially our, you know, we have a, fairly large Ukrainian community here in the Chicago area, the, the Ukrainians who are standing up for Ukraine, they're not engaged in dual loyalty. They're dual American. They are Americans. And they believe that it's in the best interest of the United States to support Ukraine against Russia. Now, mm -hmm. why are they focused more particularly on Ukraine? Are they engaged in some sort of a double standard? Should they not be supporting other groups? No, not at all. They have they know more about Ukraine and they do have an emotional attachment. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. As Americans, they have the right to say we think American foreign policy should be X, just as Jewish Americans have the right to say we think American foreign policy should be Y. And if yeah. the majority of Americans disagree, that's the way it goes. And it's not complicated. I mean, Americans are used to Americans having heritage that comes from someplace else because we are. After all, right. a nation of Im immigrants, largely some forced here. Most came here violently and some were here when all of those folks got here, but they got pushed around an awful lot. We're, we're kind of used to people moving around. Right. And you're exactly right. And that makes Trump's accusations of dual loyalty even the less excusable because it shows not only does he not understand Jewish Americans not only is engaging in anti-Semitic rhetoric, but he doesn't understand what really makes America great, which is the fact that we welcome immigrants, that everyone should have equal rights, 
and that we shouldn't be hating other people. We should be welcoming other people and helping everyone succeed. And yet that's not the Republican agenda and certainly not Donald Trump's agenda. Well, let me go back for a minute to this uh, lobbying organization, APEC. They supported in this last cycle more than 100 insurrectionists. And for me, nice Jewish American that I am, I found that appalling um, in every possible way, in every possible way. How, what, what's, the, what's, what's that about? And um, is, is that something that is roundly condemned by American Jews? It should be something that's roundly condemned by American Jews. And the exact number is 109 insurrectionists. A recent poll, it was in my newsletter last week, um, showed that they actually asked the question. And it was a very factually worded question, something along the lines of, do you approve or disapprove of APAC's decision to back people who are um, denied, voted against certifying the 2020 election on the grounds that they're nevertheless pro-Israel, something like that. And 72% of Jewish Americans disapproved of that decision. So APAC's decision to back those insurrectionists, you know, someone must like it, but most, you know, nearly three-quarters of American Jews disapprove of it. Among mm-hmm. Jewish Democrats, the number rises to 90%. 90% of Jewish Democrats disagree with APAC's decision to do that. I agree with you as a mistake because... And if your definition of pro-Israel leads you to be able to endorse them, then I think you need to redefine your definition of pro-Israel. Because if the United States is not democratic, we're not going to be able to defend Israel. I mean, the whole relationship is based on shared values. And that was just a huge mistake. And they didn't have to do it. This was the first year they ventured into um, Mm -hmm. directly backing candidates with endorsements and money. It was just it was a mistake on their part. Um, I have no big, idea. Big one, I don't know what you think he was. Yeah. Sorry? Um, a big one, I think. Yeah. So Israel's had recent elections, and they are not uncontroversial, um, following an uh, old American playbook, and they've taken a sharp rightward turn. Many Americans are going to be critical of that. Many Jewish Americans are going to be critical of that. Um, uh, I want to ask you two questions about that. One uh, what do you expect to hear? But two, how do you think this is going to be used um, in the next election cycle here domestically? Well, it's going to definitely create some problems for pro-Israel advocacy because there are members of the government in Israel who are Kahanis, who even, you know, basically racist. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be decisions made by the government in Israel that many of us disagree with. Um, I think it's... I wonder if the Biden administration will even meet with certain members of the Knesset. They'll certainly meet with Netanyahu. But I think what we have to remember is there's a difference between the state of Israel and the government of Israel. Just as, for example, you can be a patriotic American, support the United States, and disagree with Donald Trump. And by the same token, you can be a patriotic American and disagree with Joe Biden. You can support Israel and disagree with certain policies of Netanyahu's government. And that's fine. We can do that. There will, it will be more criticism. You know, Joe Biden, no president ever has entered office with a longer and stronger record of friendship and support for Israel and Jewish people than Joe Biden has. It's five decades long. Um, and he understands that. Um, Biden definitely understands the U.S.-Israel relationship. 
the overwhelming majority of Congress in both parties understands the foundations of the U.S.-Israel relationship. So I think, for example, the fact that Israel has a government whose decisions we may disagree with on certain issues does not obviate the real need that Israel has for legitimate security concerns. Um, from, you know, Hezbollah still has those missiles, Hamas still has those missiles, Iran is still a threat. That doesn't change depending on which government exists in Israel. But some things that, if, for example, if Israel legalizes settlements or attempts to annex the West Bank, I don't know if they will or not, but if things like that happen, the United States will speak out, many Jewish Americans will speak out, and we have to recognize that speak, opposing that is not anti-Semitic. Republicans will try to conflate the two. Republicans will say, oh, look, Democrats are criticizing Israel. In some cases, they'll claim it's anti-Semitic. There are cases of places not pro-Israel. And what I would say to that is watch how Democrats vote. I mean, Democrats, it is possible to criticize Israel and support Israel's legitimate needs for security. And that's exactly what Democrats do. But there's no question, especially with McCarthy, if it looks like um, the Republicans are going to well, take control of the House with the majority. Under McCarthy, you'll see a lot of legislation introduced, resolutions introduced that are pretty much meaningless, but that are designed to create a ledge issue and to create the illusion that Democrats oppose Israel when in fact they don't. So we'll have to watch that, and it's up to people like me and you to get the truth out there and let people know that you know, as Americans, we have the right to speak our mind, but as, by the same token, we should also support Israel. And there's no contradiction between criticizing the government of the United States or Israel and supporting the state of Israel or the United States of America. Yeah, I am a patriot. I love my country. I love living in the United States. And I have been uh, as deeply critical of my own government and its decisions right. over my lifetime as anybody I know um, and celebrated some of them a lot. But, oh, my gosh, many of them have been... Um, uh, you know, unnerving and a, and a lot during the Trump administration, really unnerving. Exactly. And that's why, and that's why it's good. We need to speak out. And again, the key is, you know, regardless of what Republicans say, we know from the vast majority of Jewish Americans agree that it is, it's okay to criticize Israel. You can say, and most, yet even those who very much support Israel, criticism of Israel. Okay. Even harsh or unfair criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. And I think the best course is if someone does say something about Israel that we disagree with, don't automatically label it anti-Semitic. Deal with it on the merits as opposed to trying to shut down the conversation. It's much more credible that way and it's much likely to get to a better result. And Steve, just so that everybody, you know, we can level set a little bit, the, the issues in that part of the world are enormously complicated um, and painful. You know, for many years, I had a partner in a business, a Palestinian man. I love him. And we had a a wonderful business, um, worked uh, in that part of the world. And, um, you know, he has never been there. His family fled um, in in 48. Um, But his dad had a Jewish partner who helped him get out of the country and save his life. I mean, it was a it's a very painful place because it's the issues are so complicated. And I think if the Israelis and the Palestinians had the chance to solve it, they would. But but the whole place is the size of Cook County. When you think of the Sunni Shia, nine, you know, billions of people and the conflict between the two, then you understand what, why 
Hezbollah gets armed and Hamas gets armed. It's not um, uh, paid for by local money of the Palestinians. This is all coming in for a much bigger fight that has so little to do with um, the Israelis and the Palestinians who are, you know, just living in a crummy neighborhood. No, I mean, that's right. It's um, it, it, it's really hard because there is a lot going on. A lot of doesn't involve Israel. As you point out, there are, there, there are intra-Arab conflicts, inter-Arab conflicts. And then, of course, there's Israel itself. I mean, the problem with Israel is you basically have two peoples who both have legitimate claims to the same land. And my view is that, you know, it's not going to be, no side should be required to give up its narrative. Um, the fact of the matter is, Jews, Jews do have historic claims and religious claims and moral claims to the West Bank. And Palestinians were evicted, sometimes forcibly, from pre-1967 Israel. The answer is not for either side to give up its narrative or its history. The answer is for both sides to say, if we want peace, we're going to have to give up land that we think is ours. That means on the Israeli side, they may have to visit Hebron as tourists and not as people mm-hmm. for whom it's part of the state. And for the Palestinian side, they are to, you know what? Maybe my great-grandfather was evicted from Tel Aviv, but it's not going to be part of Palestine. It's going, to re- it's going to remain part of Israel. It requires painful sacrifices on both sides. And right now, neither side has leadership that is willing to tell its own people that it needs to make these sacrifices. And I think what we really need is it's almost like it's a very difficult situation, but at the exact same time, there has to be leadership in Israel, leadership among the Palestinians, and leadership in the United States willing to take significant political and, in some cases, personal risks for peace. The classic paradigm is uh, the peace treaty with Egypt. At the exact same time, you had Menachem Begin, who was right-wing, but was able to tell his people, you know what, we're going to have to give up the Sinai Peninsula, give up oil independence, give up the buffer we have between us and, at the time, the most powerful Arab state. You have to have a leader like Anwar Sadat, who was willing to tell his people, you know, we're going to talk to the Jewish state, we're going to make peace, we're going to talk with them, um, which was a big step for him, and a president like Jimmy Carter, who was willing to risk his political fortunes by bringing the two sides together and by putting pressure on both of them to get a peace agreement. That doesn't come that doesn't happen very often. The closest we had since then was when President Clinton and Yitzhak Rabin were both uh, in power. And unfortunately, terribly unfortunately, um, Rabin was assassinated. And once you lost Rabin, you kind of lost the, peace, the chances for peace. So, you know, there are different theories of history. Is history trends or is it great people? And I don't know the answer to that, but I think for the Middle East, it's proven you know, the people in power can make a huge difference. And sadly, right now, um, in President Biden, we might have that leader, but we certainly don't have it in Israel or among the Palestinians. Yeah. I want to uh, end, however, in a place that I never thought I would end. But I, I, I think the Abraham Accords that, that Donald Trump deserves some credit for um, were probably the high point of his presidency. Um, you could, I mean, it's a very low, I mean, when you have such a low presence, you doesn't much find a high point. It could be, but let's not oversell the Abraham Accords. They weren't peace agreements. There are economic, basically economic and military agreements between Israel and three or four Gulf states about a thousand miles away from Israel 
with yep. whom Israel was never involved in a shooting war. Um, normalization, yep. is, normalization is always good. You know, the, the expanded trade, I mean, they're good. I'm not denigrating them, but we shouldn't push them and make them into what they're not. Um, it doesn't obviate the need for real peace with the Palestinians. It doesn't obviate the need to contain Iran's quest for a nuclear weapon. And those are all, and that, by the way, if you want to talk about high points and low points, Trump's decision to walk away from the Iran deal, to break the deal while Iran was still in compliance, was probably the biggest foreign policy mistake since President Bush's decision to invade Iraq um, for really yeah. no good reason. As a result, and really of dangerous Trump's decision. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah. Trump, Iran was more than a year away from nuclear weapons when Trump um, broke, walked away from the deal. Now they're weeks away at most yeah. from yeah. breakout. And it was a, it was a terrible, tragic mistake on his part. And he did. And that decision did much more to damage Israel's security than almost any president's ever done. Just a, a terrible, yeah. terrible mistake on his part. That, I think, is where we have to leave it because we've run out of time. Steve, it's always a, a pleasure reading your newsletter. People should sign up. It's Thank the you. Chicagoland Pro-Israel Political Update if you're interested in. Um, and if they can, can I just say this? If they want, just if they send an email to steve at steveshuffy.com, I'll be happy to add them to the list. There you go. It's well worth reading. And um, keep it up, Steve. It's a, it's a great uh, pleasure to catch up with you. It's an honor to speak with you. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Well, if I had a bell, I'd be ringing it because John Nichols is back. And for those of you who are new to the show or have forgotten, John is National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation, Associate Editor at Cap Times in Wisconsin, a prolific journalist, an insightful author, and throughout the last election cycle, John's observations and insights were like um, a lighthouse that sort of kept us from running into the shoals and steered us in the right direction. John, welcome back. John, are you here? We've got a very bad connection on this end. Uh, uh, should we call you? I can hear you perfectly. Oh, for some reason, it's coming through very, very badly on this end. I'll uh, tell you what. Anyway, we'll, we'll call, can, yeah. Should we call you right back? Why don't you? I think it's, it might be better. All right. We'll call you right back. Okay. I'll All be right. ready. Okay. Paul, will you take care of that? All right. And. And, and look, while while we're calling him back, I, you know, um, expect John to talk about what's going on in Wisconsin and what's going on in the whole country. Um, I, I, I want to just say, though, I, you know, one of the things he's going to talk about is how the people in Wisconsin and around the country stood up to the bullying. Right. We were told resistance is futile. Right. In face of the oncoming red wave. But we didn't listen. You know, Americans did what we always do. We ran big, fair elections um, and weren't intimidated by it. And some of the best examples of that were in Wisconsin. Uh, and, and John had covered all of that, which is pretty exciting. Um, you know, uh, where there, I'm ready. All right. All right John, the connection's fine now. Yeah. Perfect. Great. Perfect. Well, I'm thrilled that you're here uh, for a lot of reasons. I'm so proud of the people of Wisconsin, 
you know, <laughs> went up against unbelievable odds and pulled off some astonishing victories. I mean, I'm sad that the yep. worst United States senator will be returning, um, but he'll be in a he'll be in an even bigger minority and less problematic. But still, I th- I think you guys did a great job. Well, I appreciate that. But it's, it's good to hear from our, our Illinois neighbor. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the results of Wisconsin were stunningly good. Um, Tony Ebers, the governor, Democratic governor of Wisconsin, uh, who faced an, a real onslaught, just an incredible attack from a millionaire opponent uh, who was backed by Donald Trump and, you know, the whole Republican attack machine. Ebers won by a dramatically larger margin than he won by in 2018. In fact, you know, better part of 100,000 votes. Um, so a very big victory there. And uh, obviously a new lieutenant governor, Sarah Rodriguez, uh, Secretary of State Doug LaFollette reelected, and Attorney General Josh Call reelected, saved the legislature from having a Republican supermajority, which the legislature is very gerrymandered. And so the Republicans were going to win it, but they were going for a supermajority. If they'd gotten that, they would have been able to roll over Evers on most of the issues. Um, and so, yeah, by and large, uh, Wisconsinites, Wisconsin Democrats, I think, breathed a sigh of relief. Uh, but there was, of course, great disappointment that uh, Mandela Barnes didn't win the Senate race. Yeah. Well, and you say, you know, Governor Evers won, you know, by a huge margin. It's a Wisconsin huge margin. Yeah, I realize it's not an Illinois huge margin. I understand the difference. But you see, Governor Evers won last time by under 30,000 votes. I mean, yeah. and it was it was just a nail-biter. Whereas this time, it's around 90,000 votes. I'd have to look at the, at the final sort-out. But it was a solid victory. And, you know, it, to, to their credit, and I do give credit, his opponent, who had at times had, had sort of hinted that he might not accept the results, uh, got beat so badly that he accepted it immediately. Uh, and, and that was good. Um, and, frankly, uh, Wisconsin had a pretty smooth election. And an election that also suggests to you that as we look toward 2024, Wisconsin is one of the five great battleground states, right? The ones that that we look at each cycle. That's Georgia and Arizona and then the three Great Lakes states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Well, as of Tuesday, or we could go Tuesday, um, you know, all those places were up for grabs. There was concerns all around. Well, let's take a look at the reality of what we've got. Democratic governors of Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, um, Democratic secretaries of state uh, in all those states except Georgia, where Georgia has Brad Raffensperger, who's, while not perfect, uh, somebody who did stand up to Trump. And so uh, Democratic, also Democratic attorneys general in most of the great, in these Great Lakes states. So when you look at the reality of it, uh, it was in the states, really, even more than in the Senate races nationally, that Democrats showed uh, just a, a real strength and something that's a very positive sign going toward 2024. Yeah, I mean, y- you raised uh, the fact that the, some of the election deniers conceded when they lost. And I, I yeah, last week I spent, some time, yeah. I spent some time on this show calling them heroes. I mean, I really think that the people who lost this cycle did America as much a favor as anybody because they still 
they acknowledge that, you know what, we run free and fair elections. And in Wisconsin, you guys tore yourself in knots with this special investigation that the former Supreme Court Judge Gableman ran, you know, telling everybody that your elections were shams. And yet, um, I think that's all been proven a lie across the country. Right. right? And even the election deniers, almost all of them, they they conceded. Uh They said... You know what? Elections. It's just amazing when when Americans vote, how powerful that is. It can just shut up an election denial. Right. It's an amazing (laughs) thing. Well, and I think it I think it's even bigger than that. Edwin. I think everything you're saying is exactly right. But then we add on this other reality that not only did they have to concede, you know, and they they ultimately did, but also so many of them lost. And I think that that was a real wake up call because. My sense is that a lot of them realized that the, they've been living in a bubble for the last, you know, two, more than two years now. They, they've been buying a fantasy, and that fantasy tells them that Americans think, you know, there's some sort of threat to democracy and that, you know, somehow our elections are illegitimate and all these things that they claim, all these lines that they peddle. But the bottom line is... Americans don't think that, you know, I mean, this is yeah, not yeah. a popular it, view. <laughs> and, yeah, and in a midterm election cycle, Edwin, where yeah. um, on balance, the Democrats should have lost, you know, should have had roughly a 30 seat loss, 30, 32 seat loss. They should have lost several seats in the U.S. Senate. They should have suffered major setbacks in the state. That's what happens in midterm elections. It's just the nature of the game. The party that isn't in power loses. None of that occurred. Democrats lost the House, which is tough, but they're going to end up being down by three or four seats. Uh, They've increased their position in the Senate, probably at least they're the same. Maybe with Georgia, they go to an even bigger majority. And in the states, that's the real story. In the states across the country, including Wisconsin, where we started talking about, Democrats are in a better position now than they have been in for years. They have not only won two additional governorships, they have also flipped a number of state houses across the country, and they've dramatically increased the number of legislators they hold. You know, I think um, you were talking a little bit how this reality was a wake-up call for, you know, the MAGA crowd. But I think the MAGA threats to democracy woke Democrats up, not to the immediate threat, but to a deeper meaning of our democracy. And you see, uh, you see a sort of an inchoate shift in our focus. I look at John Fetterman's campaign, Maria Camp's miraculous campaign, even Tim Ryan, although he lost. And I I sort of see a new focus amongst Democrats on working families and rural voters, you know, and I think you're right. I, I, I think that is, the Democrats have long sort of we've always protected people who differ from the majority. You know, we've worried about uh, about minority rights and we will never give that away. But I think for the first time in a long time, there's a concern to pay attention to the majority as well and to recognize they need help, too. I think that's a long term strength. Yeah, I might put it slightly differently. And just say that Democrats are now embracing the whole majority, right? And because the majority of Americans 
no matter what their race, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their region that they come from, urban, rural, suburban, the majority of Americans are working class. The majority of Americans get up in the morning and they've got to do a job. That job may not be fun. It may not be easy. Uh, They may work white collar, pink collar, blue collar. They may work on a farm. They may work in a factory. They may work in an office. But at the end of the day, they have to go to work. And um, a party that cares about their conditions, right, that cares about whether they can organize the union, whether they can, you know, have access to health care, good benefits, you know, all the basic demands, and also, frankly, they can have some dignity on the job. Um, that party's going to do well. And Democrats lost sight of that. Um, I think, if, especially under Bill Clinton, uh, where they started to support free trade deals that were not good for working class people. They weren't good for working class communities. And, and it, had, it did damage. And then when you had the uh, 2008 economic meltdown and the bailout that followed that, um, Democrats joined with Republicans in bailing out bankers in Wall Street rather than bailing out homeowners and, you know, working people who had lost jobs. And it all ended up in a situation where there was a lot of skepticism. There was a lot of discomfort. What I think has happened, and I think I'd trace it back to Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016, uh, the initial campaign and then, you know, carrying forward from that, is that Democrats finally figured out that they need to be on the side of the broad working class of this country. And they also figured out something else, that abortion rights, abortion rights is an economic issue. It's certainly a social issue, as it's always discussed, but it's also an issue for working women, the ability to control their own lives, the ability to make decisions about, you know, how they're going to deal with reproductive health issues. This is vital. And so as the smart Democrats put all of these things together, right, and talked about this, in an effective way. I think they made connections this cycle that maybe they haven't made in, in, in some time. And here's the really interesting thing. The people that got it most of all, young voters. The incredible turnout of young voters, unexpectedly high, and with a 28% advantage to the Democrats. Pause and take that in. That you know, 28% advantage among voters under 30 for the Democrats. That's Mind-blowing. I have uh, uh, young adult children. They're all in their 20s. And before the election, uh-huh. I was giving them a hard time about young people not voting. Um, they have well, so kicked me story, down right? afterwards. <laughs> they have <laughs> said, well, yeah, who, gets the, who gets the credit now, Dad? And they're right. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, look, I will tell you right now, um, young voters still need to vote at a higher percentage than they do. We can still talk about organizing, talk about the need to put resources into, uh, you know, mobilization, et cetera. That's, that's true, and it's important. But the mm-hmm. fact is that if we simply look at what happened in 2022, the young voters showed up somewhat unexpectedly, often late in the game, and they were the margin of difference. You know, we're seeing all these races around the country that took a long time to count, right? You yeah. know, Senate, yeah. number of Senate races, Arizona, Nevada, uh, the governor's races in those states, other races, many house races, especially out on the West Coast, Oregon, uh, California, Colorado. And time after time, the Democrats end up winning. They end up winning uh, by, you know, two, three percent of the vote, maybe less. Mm-hmm. And you look at the, the increased turnout of young people. That's the difference. That's what yeah. that's what did it. Yeah. 
And it's yeah. kind of interesting. It's sort of cool to actually be able to say that, you know, so clearly and without without equivocation. I think it's pretty great. So, so the Republicans are going to have a majority in the House that's probably yep. the same as Nancy Pelosi had uh, in the last session. Very close. And we are going to yep. see, I think, I mean, I'm predicting here and predicting is a dangerous game. But we are going to see that there is no Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, any of them, who has as much talent as Nancy Pelosi's little finger for getting stuff done. <laughs> well, that's right. In fact, the funny thing about it is, I, I was going to, you know, as you, when you said they're going to have um, the same, roughly the same majority as Nancy Pelosi had. And of course, yeah. the, the next the response to that is, but they won't have Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is, that Nancy Pelosi, who wasn't perfect, she'd be the first to admit it. Um, and, you know, sometimes she did things that people disagreed with. That's fine. But the fact is, she was, has been the best legislative strategist to hold the speaker's job. And that's different. By the way, that's different than a backroom dealer. Yeah, right? No, in my lifetime. I yeah. think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, and, you think of she did, capable speakers, but she stood out. She, I mean, she got the Affordable Care Act when Barack was president, Inflation Reduction Act. This time got uh, bipartisan bills passed. Um, infrastructure. I mean, it's just an amazing set of accomplishments. And the next oh, Congress yeah. is going to is going to is going to, I guess, gonna gonna be... spend their entire time investigating Hunter Biden. Uh huh. You're about right. And you know what? <laughs> More power to them, right? Yeah, I, that's all I they're going to do. It's yeah. no harm. <laughs> you know? I, I was, I was talking to a Democratic no congressman last week, and I said, you know, it's it's heresy. I'm actually glad that the Republicans have a tiny majority in the House this time. If Democrats had it all, then 2024 would be a lot harder. But the Republicans are going to continue to give America a lesson in why they can't be trusted with power. Well, and they're not going to accomplish anything. They're going to stand in the way of Joe Biden and the Democrats doing all sorts of things they're prepared to do. And you look at what the what the Democrats have, you know, keyed up, right? And expansion of labor rights, definitely necessary, definitely to the good for all concerned. Uh, mm-hmm. Codification of Roe v. Wade, uh, mm-hmm. major initiatives to deal with the climate crisis, major initiatives to deal with housing. You just run down the list. It's issue after issue after issue. And they're going to be blocked by the Republicans again and again and again. Um, and, you know, the Republicans are going to say, yeah, but Hunter Biden. And, you know, the average American is going to look at that and just say, no, <laughs> we want the good stuff. We don't want to have an investigation of some guy's computer. We actually want housing, health care, education, job improvement, you know, all the things that are being talked about. So the Democrats right. are actually now, they're in a very strong position. It isn't. It's still not as good as having the majority and actually being able to govern. But because you had that mansion cinema phenomenon, so you had a yep. barrier in the Senate, and and unfortunately, even now, if, even if Warnock wins, you're still going to have two. Those two senators are still going to be there. So Democrats would have still faced this challenge, right? This challenge of getting things done as effectively and as boldly. Uh, now there's this clarity, whether it's fair or not. There's a clarity on who's really standing in the way because it was never Mansion and Cinema who were the problem, right? They no, were a problem. problem. They were part of it, 
But the problem, real problem was that the Democrats couldn't get any Republicans to come over to do the right thing. Now, well, because of the House control by the Republicans, that's going to become very, very clear. Very obvious. And, and, and in, you know, um, the things that they really did accomplish in the 117th Congress are going to kick in in the next two years. Yeah. So we'll see we'll see a lot of the benefits of the bills they passed back then. And then so it'll be even more of a stark contrast to the nothing that's being done that will be done by this group. I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I think, but you see, this becomes an issue, and you know I've talked about this before. This becomes a great challenge for uh, Democrats, progressives, you know, no matter where, how people identify. It is not merely to uh, have done the right thing, but to communicate about it effectively. Mm-hmm. And at a time when the Republicans are going to be, as you suggest, screaming Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, and also probably uh, trying to, you know, mess things up by not lifting the debt ceiling or by messing with the budget in some way or something like that. We're going to continually be creating challenges, creating problems. The Democrats need to not just say, oh, the Republicans are bad guys. They also need to say, by the way, the stuff we did before, that is kicking in. You're actually getting stuff because of what we did. And if you give us power again, if you give it back to us, we can do a whole lot more. And so there's a community in a moment where you don't have a majority, then you enter into a communication uh, struggle. And it's absolutely vital for the Democrats to communicate effectively over these next two years. Yeah, but that's they gonna, come the, on the your advantage. Radio show. Uh, they should come on my radio show. Right. But they can also go to practically every uh, county in the country and point to new roads and expanded broadband, and, you know, and. And gleaming new airports in place of falling apart ones. I mean, the the money that's being spent um, or they can talk. We can show, my gosh, the the reinvestment in American manufacturing that's happening Uh is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the investment in new technologically advanced manufacturing. Yep. Yep. Uh, You're exactly right. And then maybe they ought to do what Franklin Roosevelt did. And that's put a put a plaque on everything. I totally agree with that, right? Totally agree. And let all the Republicans line up and announce these things that are in their districts as if they supported them. <laughs> Which they do all the time. Yeah. This is an interesting dynamic. Of, again, claiming credit for what yeah. you've done is a really important part of politics, which, frankly, Democrats frequently forget to do. Yep. Right. I agree with that. So, so um You've recently written, I don't want to rain on this happy parade, but you've re- you recently wrote oh, no. a piece in The Nation where, where you point out that Donald Trump's base is still strong enough that he might win him the party nomination, even if he oh, never no. wins a, a majority of Republican votes. But, and let's leave that as a possibility. But on the other hand, like, seriously, what does it say about the Republican Party that their escape pod, you know, is Ron DeSantis? Oh, no, it's worse. I know. That's, the fact of the matter is that there are things Trump wouldn't do that DeSantis did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. This is the incredible thing. And I think people have to really recognize this, that the 2024 presidential race, um, you know, there's going to be an obsession with Trump. People focus on him all the time. They always yep. talk about him, and that's going to continue. Um, he's just more interesting. He's a lot more interesting than DeSantis. And yep. and I think on balance, the likelihood is that he will be the nominee. I don't think people should be unrealistic about that. 
he's got a base of about 30 to 35% that likes him. Uh, and that's enough if there's any kind of crowded primary, which there probably will be. But even if it isn't him, right, the thing to understand is this party is no longer interested in promoting democracy or in, you know, like competing in a realistic way. This is a party that has decided that it's going to it's going to play this game, uh, you know, for all the marbles. Like if they win, they don't want to ever lose again. That's the whole theory. Uh, it is an Ohio. What's going on in Ohio? Just heartbreaking. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So when you look at that, when you recognize that's who they are, um, whether they nominate a Donald Trump or a Ron DeSantis or somebody else, uh, unless there is a huge break in the pattern of the Republican Party, what you have to understand is they want power so that they don't have to give it up. And that, obviously, that's the model Trump adopted, but it's become very, it's really infected the party. You look at who they nominated for offices across the country. They didn't nominate people saying, yeah, look, here's the smartest, best person who's really going to do a good job for everyone. Here's somebody who believes in free and fair elections. Here's somebody who, you know, is genuinely on the side of the people. No, they nominated people who echoed Donald Trump's worst fantasies. And um, and most of those people lost, at least in a lot of key races. That's a really critical reality of our politics. But it is not going to change in 2024. No, no. Autocrats believe in rule by law, not rule of law. And if you doubt it, look at what the Supreme Court has done. It's, you know, it's that's not, exactly right. It's just an imposition of power on people. And that's not. But I will give are. you a, I'll give you no. I'll give you a Wisconsin hero, though, before we finish. And that is. Tammy Baldwin, who has looked at this threat to marriage equality, and it looks like, amazingly enough, she is going to get the United States Senate to codify marriage equality at a time when it's threatened by the Supreme Court. That is an incredible accomplishment, and uh, that's a Wisconsinite for you. Absolutely fabulous. So, as always, John, it's a great pleasure to catch up, and I I love that's where we're ending. Um, you have you're never going to get bored. You got plenty to write about. Um, I'm waiting it. for somebody to put uh, you know GPS trackers on the back of the alligators in Florida so we can watch as the DeSantis <laughs> crowd moves them to Mar-a-Lago and the Trump crowd moves them back up to the Capitol. Oh man, that's a, you got a possibility there, my friend. <laughs> All right. Anyway, great to catch up, and I look forward to our our, our next talk. Congratulations on what you and your fellow uh, Wisconsinites have done. Thanks so much, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Be strong. You you bet. All right, everybody. That was the fast, uh, John Nichols, national correspondent for The Nation and an editor at Cap Times. We're going to take a break from the news. And when we return, I'm going, as I did at the beginning, to talk to a local alderman. But Helen Schiller hasn't been an alderman in a long time. She is uh, going to talk about a lifetime of radical activism. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. Welcome back, everybody. Um, This is, of course, your hour. Uh, I'm going to talk to uh, my friend Helen Schiller in a minute, but when we're done, 773-763-9278, and I'm going to want to hear from you. But first, Helen. Helen describes herself in her new book called Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win This Way. She says, 
raised by migrant Jewish parents, was radicalized by the anti-war and civil rights movements. Schiller was in a collective of white people aligned with the Black Panther Party in Chicago. Beginning in 1987, Schiller was a radical Chicago alder person for 24 years. So everybody, I'd like you to meet Helen Schiller. Helen? Hi, Edwin. <laughs> Hi. So I think it's so interesting that, that, you know, these are the things you use to describe yourself in the about section of your book. Well, that's actually Haymarket Books describing me. They're the publisher. Um, oh, okay. It's not in the book, but it's their description. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I, I think of you um, with all of those as true, but I think of you as a little differently. I actually um, do too. So there you have it. <laughs> okay. Well, um, it, I want to talk about your book. Its book is kind of amazing. In in, in America, well, everywhere, right? Um, every message society sends to people in poverty is that they are powerless and can do nothing about it, right? And everything in your adult life has rejected that message. So t- tell everybody how you came to that. You know, I mean, you, you wrote about some pretty powerful episodes in your life. Just tell them how you, how you came to decide that that's how you were going to dedicate your life. Well, boy, um, loaded question. Um, I think that I wrote the book uh, by starting with my history because I actually felt that was important to understand the decisions that I made in my life, and I suppose that's what you're referring to. No, I, I, yeah, I am a little bit. Yeah. So, so I grew up with three brothers, and um, in a household that uh, where all things male held sway, <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, I was the only girl. And my mother and 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 my my parents had had two my two older brothers, and I think really hadn't planned to have any more kids. But my mother really wanted a girl, so she said, "We're going to try one more time," um, and that and so I was. There was five years between me and my younger brother, the younger of the two, and six years between the older of the two. And then six years later, another brother was born. Um, And so I was the only girl and, you know, kind of had to really um, struggle for every kind of acknowledgement or recognition or even my own direction. It was always assumed that the, the boys were really the center of everything. And... Um, and it was secondary what the girls could achieve. There was always this sort of inherent contradiction. I don't really, I mention this in the book, but I don't explicitly talk about it. My grandmother, who um, emigrated here uh, with my mother when my mother was six and a half and her brothers, uh, I mean her sisters, and, um, and her, her whole family in 1921. But my grandmother, uh, they lived in Eastern Europe, what's now Belarus, and they... Uh, she was a ner- she was a, a dentist in the mm-hmm. 19th century. It's pretty extraordinary to me, um, but I didn't really think about it much until I started thinking about how my mother, who in the during the de- at the beginning of the depression, had um, was going to nursing school and became a nurse. And I asked her why she had decided to be a nurse and at one point, and she said, because I couldn't be a doctor. So she, even though her mother had managed that accomplishment, my mother felt she never could and, um, and resented it. And that was really had an impact on the way I thought about stuff, because I've never believed that you just, it was never, to, I couldn't survive if I had accepted 
that you can't make changes. You can't be other than what people expect of you because I never wanted to be what people expected of me. I never yeah. wanted to be invisible. Um, and that was kind of expected. So I had a lot of different experiences, which are all in the book when I was young, where my dad was always talking about fascism and needing to fight it. My mother was talking about her interactions uh, with a lot of people, both who be, were actually, I learned later on, icons in one way or another with regards to early civil rights um, and the struggles that she, they were all involved in during the, the, the Depression. Um, and, my, and then there are historic experiences. My dad had, both of my parents had family killed in the Holocaust. So these were all part of me growing up. And then when I was away at school, both from pressure from my dad, I got involved in the anti-war movement, but just being in the midst. And when I was in high school, I actually interact with a lot of people that had a direct relationship to the civil rights movement. Um, it, it just seemed important that those that, that, that there were things going on I had to respond to. And you told me, I think, um, that one of your, your earliest memories of something that your dad did was sit you down in front of a TV to watch uh, Joe McCarthy's House on American uh, Activities yes. Committee. Yep, that's my first chapter, actually. <laughs> yep. But yeah, yep. so he had me do that when I was actually in kindergarten and, um, and, uh, and basically told me I'm having you do this so that you'll know what fascism is or you'll know that fascism is something you should find out about when you get older, even though you're going to be bored and not going to know what mm -hmm. we're doing here. That was really important to him, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was important to you, too. It stuck pretty, totally. pretty well. Totally. It completely stuck over and over and over again. That came back so, in my head, yeah. So let's, let's go back to this, this question of helplessness, because you weren't ever going to be helpless. You just weren't. It wasn't in your DNA. And then you, 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 told, you went into communities of poverty um, where everyone's told they're helpless, and you started to teach people that they weren't. And you, you, you found partnership with the Black Panther Party to do that. Talk about the beginnings of that movement. Okay, so first, let me say you give me a little bit too much credit. I always think have a piece of me has felt helpless, but I react to that and reject it. So I, my life has been a process of kind of feeling encircled and then determining that I had to break out of it and take action, usually collectively with others. It's hard for me to say that I've actually came to that myself. But that's ultimately a process I go through often. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I came to, I was really recruited to come to Chicago to work with a group that was being formed. This was 1972. That was called the Intercommunal Survival Committee. And we were a small cadre, about 20, 25 people, of white people working under the direction of the Black Panther Party, organizing white people to join a black-led struggle for liberation. And we focused on Uptown because it was the highest concentration of poor white people in Chicago, at least at the time, and also was in a community that had, um, it was only one of two communities, as I recall, at the time that had integrated census tracts in Chicago. And um, so we were, uh, so, so we functioned, what, basically what we did was really taking the Black Panther Party platform and program, applying that because um, the needs were the same in, in virtually all poor and oppressed communities, including the white community that was poor and working poor. And uh, we applied a lot of what we learned from that in those 10 points uh, to the work that we did every day. We created survival programs. We went door to door. We had literature. We sold the Black Panther paper. We created our own magazine. We had events constantly. We did health fairs. We did 
We've created programs based on the conversations we have with people, but we didn't do them for people. We did them with people. So if there was an issue of people didn't have food, we created collectively a, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, a food bank. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had a, we developed a, um, a welfare defense program at a time when there was welfare and a legal defense program to address all the especially criminal stuff, especially petty criminal stuff that uh, legal assistance couldn't do because they had to do just civil cases. We um, and engaged a lot of, you know, attorneys to participate and do stuff pro bono. We participated in and brought people to, to the many, the, the several free health clinics that existed in the early 70s and then later did all sorts of health stuff, including with black lung, to uh, mm-hmm. to create clinics or to provide advocacy for people. So it was all based on the needs that people had and the conditions that existed. And the point was, and the reason for going to Uptown where this concentration was, is that it allowed for the potential for political power, which was the best way to talk about people about about not just being powerless, not to accept being the brunt of all things wrong, not agreeing to or allowing to remain the victim, and how, and therefore, collectively and together, we we sought to turn that around. We sought not to be victims, and that I think process in and of itself, for me at least, and I think for others, was really the way in which not to become the victim, not to accept that, and to demand change. So I want to make a connection for the listeners to something that we talked about home when you weren't on the show. So give me one second here. For all of you, when, when I talk about Ohio and the, um, the, the minority rule in Ohio because of gerrymandering, because of the way they, they have uh, changed the rules, how they elect their, their uh, Supreme Court, because of their doing away with direct uh, uh, initiatives by voters so that a small group of people can rule can rule everybody else. Um, the lessons that Helen is talking about from Uptown apply because there are ways you can overcome some of that um, where there is a possibility for democracy. Because in the Uptown that Helen moved into, the residents of that community had almost no say, even in who their elected officials were. All right, Helen, did I get that part right totally. about Yep. yep. So talk about that, and then what you did to shift the political power away from uh, uh, the Orbach era. Right. So uh, the first thing we did was actually, uh, well, we were always involved somewhat on a grassroots level in terms of some of the elections and issues that were going on. But in 1973, I did an analysis of uh of the ward the, the, that we lived in it was the 46th ward, which included um, about two thirds of the uptown community and um, a, north, a, a northeast corner of Lake, the Lakeview community, which was largely high rises, but not entirely. Um, and I went through that and realized that what they had done was they had encircled uh, the the poor and working community and had um, with middle class. Uh, folks largely, the, the majority of which were really in the high rises and with and never, which is east and right next to the lake, and never really had a reason to go west or to even be in uptown, the heart of uptown. And so they were unfamiliar entirely with the issues and needs that people had. Uh, so it was really like an encirclement. 
and there was no communication between them, but certainly no support for the issues that the folks in Uptown had, in the heart of Uptown, because there was no communication or understanding of it. And easily the primary information they got was from the machine and, you know, the, sort of the status quo. So um, we did this analysis and realized that if you take away, uh, if you look at who, re who voted, which was a very low percentage, and then you looked at the number of people that were eligible to vote first versus the ones that were registered, and you factored that in, that we realized that the current alderman at that time had been elected with less than 17, I think it was 17% of the vote, but definitely under 20% and of the potential vote. And I think potential is the most important word here, because for me, there's always the potential for change. There's always a potential for a real solution to a problem. We just haven't necessarily found it yet. So we need to be looking and dealing with it. So the first step was understanding the circumstance. When we realized that, we immediately started working on voter registration. And over the and in 1973 in Chicago, there were very few ways you could register to vote. And the only registration was really facilitated by the Democratic machine and for the people that they wanted to vote. And they tried to, you know, they were pretty good at making sure that people who didn't want to vote were, who they didn't want to vote were discouraged or didn't even have access to it or know how to do it. Yeah, so voter suppression is not a new idea. Exactly. But it was yep. prevalent in Chicago at the time. And today in Chicago, it's very different. Today, you have, you know, a very extended period of early voting. It goes right up to Election Day. You can... There's just it's so many ways to access voting and open up, but that is something that we really began to engage in with some of the civic organizations in the city, but especially with one attorney, um, uh, especially through the early 80s, um, Tom Johnson, who just mm -hmm. became an amazing advocate for this and just single-handedly in some ways, although he had huge support obviously, really turned around so much of the voting laws and opened them up uh, as a result of a lot of organizing other people did, but he did the legal work. Um, but anyway, we really transitioned. So that was really important, but we started right away doing voter registration. We used to, it was, you had to go downtown to register to vote except for one day uh, a month before each election. And uh, we just we would we were taking people downtown to vote virtually every day. We just had vans going downtown all the time, and became, and and so voter registration I think is really very important. But then we did what we called our survival programs, and we're constantly engaged. So we had a real connection and interaction with people, and connected everything we were doing not just to what the policies were and needed to change, but by but, but, but doing so in order to be able to make sure that other people and a growing number of people were engaged as well in advocating and making those changes. So they felt mm -hmm. a part of it, and, mm -hmm. and it wasn't done for them. It was done with them. Helen, that's such an important part. I was talking uh, at the very beginning of the show a couple hours ago with Alderman Maria Haddon about mm -hmm what it means to organize. And, and, yeah. and where we came out is, look, organizing is about, is about being able to find on-ramps for every person of talent to use their talents to benefit a community. So yeah. you don't organize for people. You just find ways to help everybody help themselves and help each other. Well, yeah, and part of that is acknowledging that you don't know anything about someone until you know that about someone. So don't make an assumption about what someone can do or can't do, but acknowledge that each of us has our own unique talents and abilities, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we need to be able to allow for those to flourish, to be seen, to, you know, to actually be realized. Yeah, and using that, that 
assets of a community as opposed to just considering it a problem. I mean, you you took on a community that many people in Chicago described as a problem, and you never saw it as a problem. You saw it as human beings and and who just with a little bit of, of ability to advocate for themselves could change their position. Yeah, so this is a community of invisible people, right? It was better to keep people invisible than to acknowledge your needs because it didn't fit into the status quo. Um, and I think that that's true for many people across the board, especially mm-hmm. as we see more and more income inequality and things like that. So, um, or backlash to gains in civil rights or what have you. Yep. So I think that uh, it's a really important notion that we really shouldn't accept the invisibility of anyone. We need to recognize people's reality, and we need to make sure that all of that is part of how we address the situation and how we even define a problem, right? Yep. <laughs> if something's not working, it's not the fault of the people uh, on either side. It's not the fault of the people who are experiencing that problem. It is that we don't have a solution yet. <laughs> yeah, usually. I agree with that. Um, so, so. Let's talk about uh, Harold Washington's election and what that meant for a big chunk of Chicago. And for most people, you know, who don't know anything about the time, it was remarkable because he was the first black man elected mayor. But um, really, there was much more than a question of race here. There was a, a, a transformation in how we think about politics and each other in the city. Talk a little bit about that and how what you were doing got connected with that and um, what that meant. So coming out of the daily years, there was a transition period, clearly, where, um, you know, there was like, well, what's going to happen now? And um, out of that, there was a short period of time when um, uh, Bland, there was was the next person after Daly, and he had been, he came from Daly's ward. He was sort of, Daly had been his mentor or whatever. Uh, and then he lost to Jane Byrne, who became a mayor largely by promising to um, dismantle the machine, which at that point was pretty strong, but mostly by by change. She claimed that she was going to make all these changes, and she got very broad support from the black community, um, as well as from the liberal white community. And she yep. basically made all these promises, and then uh, immediately did a few things, and then within like months, turned her turned around and. Um, and, and basically was more of a machine person than anyone before her. And there were lots of issues, and I actually talk about that in, and give that history in the book. Yep, you uh, do. Without getting into details, Harold became mayor and several things, just as example. He, um, up until the time he was mayor, there it was under 20% of that many people that were in any kind of decision-making position were women. His, 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 in his first term... Uh, his administration had something, it was like 50% of decision makers in him, his administration were women. Um, he created these, these um, uh, task force, uh, these sort of groups that were a central part of uh, councils, that were a central part of the government that included a women's commission, a Latino commission, all sorts of commissions that opened up stuff to people to have input and to, uh, into policy that had never had access before. In housing under Byrne, the city will housing the city faced a housing crisis as they still do an affordable housing crisis, and under Byrne, the city was spending three dollars to every one dollar of private investment. 
in Harold's first term, that was turned upside down, where private investment was spending $3 to every dollar of city investment, and they were beginning to create lots of affordable housing. Um, another thing that happened was that under Byrne, I believe it was something like maybe 50 of the same organizations had access to the public funds we were getting through block grants uh, to do programming in the communities. Under Harold, that was quadrupled at least, triple mm-hmm. or quadrupled. And he just mm-hmm. basically said, let a thousand flowers bloom. In fact, I want all as many groups as possible all over the city to actually look at innovative ideas and take on a project that they can do. Uh, that really provides a model for what the city ought to do and see if it works or it doesn't work or what does or doesn't work. And um, so, for instance, in Uptown, we did the Good Health Place, which was focused on health for families and children Mm -hmm. with children. Mm -hmm. Um, But people did that all over the city. Uh, So there were so many different things. And he also, uh, the infrastructure for the city um, was in very bad shape. And uh, street, everything, including just potholes. But... um, he created a, in spite of the opposition he faced, he was pretty a consummate, he was an amazing politician. Um, he was able to, even though he had an, a majority against him, he was able to get a, a general obligation bond passed that created infrastructure work in every single ward. And, um, and that in and of itself is a great story. But he just turned around so many things and opened up so many new avenues that even though there was a desire to turn so much back after he left, um, including, you know, minority contracting, all sorts of things, school reform. They, those things couldn't be ignored. So even after he left, even though maybe it wasn't done exactly the way he would have, um, there it was taken on. The concepts were taken on. They didn't go away. People fought for them and to a certain extent still do. But the mayors that, that followed him had to at least acknowledge all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah, Maybe do it effectively or not, but nevertheless had to really recognize Uh, it. All right. There's so much more in your book, but I want to zoom a little bit closer to present day and get your thoughts about some things. You know, one of the issues that was a constant struggle in your life was um, helping with housing affordability. And in Chicago, I think we continue to lose ground. Um, the idea that we can develop, that, that the private sector can invest in new housing without displacing lower income populations is still largely a dream in Chicago. Where has it worked? What counsel do you have for young organizers today who are determined to uh, uh, not just have a voice but have real agency? What can we do to, to uh, you know, begin to address this problem differently? Well, I think the key to it is to acknowledge that most of the time in public policy anywhere in this country, that when there is new development done um, and it's claimed to be done on behalf of people that need whatever is being done, usually it's really an excuse to move them and that they rarely get to benefit from it. That was, I mean, for me, and I talk about this a little in the book, that's what Wilson Yard was all about, um, was making sure to prove that you could do a development and the people Mm -hmm. who are living there could benefit from it. Uh, mm-hmm. So what I would say is that a couple of things. One is that we, if you're organizing and um, if you're and you really want to make something happen, the most important thing not to do is to go with the easy answer, but to really and instead to make sure uh, that you're really focused on what it takes to get something done, and that the result, no matter what you're negotiating, ultimately might be when you get to the legislative level, does not. Um, 
undermine what your goal is, is actually real, has a real material impact. We rarely mm -hmm. get actually what we want, but we need to make sure we're moving forward, not backward. And we need to make sure our negotiation never starts with where we want to end up, but always has room in order to be able to get more of what we need. Um, there were, I, I, I do tell a, at least one story about this towards the end of the book where I felt that there was an organizing effort around housing that was an extraordinary organizing effort. It was fantastic. The problem was that the demand was not realistic in terms of what the law actually was and mm -hmm. was going to end up with a result that was different than the one that was stated. But I think that um, part of what was driving the organizers or the negotiators ultimately was that they were sure one thing was the only thing that mattered and they wanted to be able to declare a victory um, ultimately and in the end it was a hollow victory. So I think we have to, and I think that creates cynicism. If you don't really yep. make the change and you create cynicism. So I think it's really important to focus on what it takes to find real solutions to real problems. Um, and I have a lot to say about that, but probably not enough time to do so. But I think that's the essence. And um, and I think that it's really important to know that it's okay to change, to realize that a tactic or something you're doing may not be working, to regroup and make sure that you're really focused on what your solution is while really being aware that you, of solving the problem, uh, you want to solve the problem with that huge collateral impact. So you need to look mm -hmm. at all the versions of what you're looking at to make sure it's really getting you down the path that you want and not being afraid to, to, to be open with your constituents and with each other and to say this isn't working, but that doesn't mean we can't move forward and find something that does. Yep. Um, and I think that in our world today, if you say something's not working, it's considered weakness. And I think that's really a way to get people off subject and to move them away from what their goals really are. That's so interesting. So, H Helen, when we talked a few weeks ago, it was before the uh, yeah. stunning and wonderful election. Um, and I said something like, I'd be really angry if I met a group of young people who didn't care enough to vote. Mm -hmm. And you corrected me right away, right away. By saying, you know what, that is that's completely wrong. You have to understand how connect people, how to connect politics to people's current struggles, and have them understand um, how they're being attacked and what power they actually have. Yeah. And that stuck with me. Talk about that for just a couple minutes here as we come to a close. Well, I think the easy, our easy answers often when we're in the midst of something that we just see so clearly and other people aren't is to blame the people for somehow not seeing what we're seeing. And I think that um, that is a mistake if you're organizing or really trying to make change, that we, need to, that we need to understand that all of us have struggles and we all have our way of viewing things and we have our lens through which we view it. And if we don't understand that, if we don't hear other people's concerns, we can't really communicate with them in order to get beyond this very polarized situation we're in. So there's a lot of polarization, and I don't think it's helpful to say you're wrong, I'm right, and to stay, stay there, that we all yeah, stay I, there. I, I thought there was great wisdom in that. Yeah. All right, well, the yeah. it's important. Sorry. It's a person idea. I mean, I think that if we don't do that, we don't get out of the polarization. Yep. And polarization is intended to stop people from communicating. So let's throw it away. <laughs> all right, the book is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. Um, Helen Schiller is the author, uh, and it's a remarkable 
and unfinished life you've had so far. I can't wait to see what's next. <laughs> well, thanks. I can't either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. We will talk again. Thank you, Helen. Great. Thanks. Thank you, Edwin. Yep. All right, we're going to take a break one more time, and when we come back, 773-763-9278. I want to hear from you. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Welcome back, and for those of you who don't have me on speed dial, 773-763-9278 to join the conversation. Paul, welcome back. Good afternoon, Edwin. Um, in in the wake of the uh, surprisingly uh, uh, surprisingly welcome election result, uh, though we will not re- remain in control of the House as Democrats, but we know what the Republicans are going to do because um, uh, you know they're going to be they aren't going to do anything productive. They're, they're going to be the Spanish Inquisition. And as we know, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition except when they're the Republicans, right? <laughs> <laughs> Amongst their diverse weaponry are such elements as pusillanimity, ignominity, predictability, and almost fanatical devotion to Donald Trump and nice red uniforms. But we can outwit that with, as long as they're going to, uh, so funding bills cannot start in the House or a must start in the House. So we won't see any funding bills starting in the House with Republicans in control. But policy legislation can start in the Senate, and the Senate Democrats can, and probably when we have 51, and we will have 51 senators, can pass legislation that is wildly popular with the American people. And I think, though Nancy Pelosi has stepped down from leadership, she will still loom huge. And I think the media will actually turn to her because there will be such weakness in the House with Kevin McCarthy or whomever they come up with. that I think the media will actually turn to Nancy Pelosi for her, for her views. I, I think she'll be a de facto speaker, and she can whip the, issue, the legislation that the Democrats passed in the, in the Senate. And then President Biden can also say, look, we have great legislation to pass. They'd rather persecute me than pass great legislation for you. And those, that legislation could be stuff that lots and lots of Republicans agree with. It's easy to do. And yet yep. they yep. will. I think we're in a good position. Yep. Sorry? I mean, I'm sorry we lost the House, but it couldn't have happened in a better way. It will be uh, the country will see what an amazing leader Nancy Pelosi was and what an inept, uh, uh, powerless, feckless uh, leadership they have on the, on the yes, I yeah, think whatever that. words you want to use. Yep. But hey, wait a minute. Instead of looking forward just so fast, I want your victory lap. I mean, you, you know, you, you might have promised me Wisconsin three, but you did get me Marie Glusenkamp Perez out where you live in Washington three, State. Yeah. And yep. that is a remarkable, remarkable win that means so much. How did that, what did that look like more locally? I only see the national coverage of that. Well, I, I don't think in my area, in the Seattle area, I mean, people, people aren't, it, it looks great. I mean, people aren't jumping up and down in the Seattle area, but <laughs> I think in Eastern Washington, people are, that, see, that, that does, what that does, I was predicting the fifth. The, the yeah, I'm sorry. Fifth, yep. But that's okay. 
What that means for the Washington Fist and Kathy McMorris Rogers is that it you know the siege has started in the third, and therefore uh, I think that she should be very um, wary that the that the Democrats are coming for her again. I mean it was you know, and I'm actually going to have on my podcast. I'm going to have one of the one of the Democratic candidates <laughs> was in that race on. And I want to talk to her about that. What she thinks? Yeah, good. Yeah, she. What what she thinks she's going to have done differently, or what could they do to, moving forward to maybe get that seat? Because you know that seat, as you well know, Edwin was held for many many years by one speaker, Tom Foley. Yeah. Well, we you know it was a this was a hard election for Democrats, and we we uh, performed miracles. Um, uh, and, you know, I think being optimistic, focusing on the hard work that we do and the actual things that get delivered for Americans, as opposed to all this blather, um, it matters. And, and when you see when the Republicans do have power, how they misuse it to impose upon people things that, uh, you know, Americans didn't like when they got taxed, you know, for stamps that they couldn't, didn't, that they didn't actually have a vote on um, and threw tea in a harbor because of it years ago. We're not that different. So when a Supreme Court imposes upon us um, uh, rules that no one votes on and that are wildly unpopular, uh, you can expect the country to react. Well, and, can, I say about, can I say about that is that what we need to, since we essentially did win, in the sense that the Republicans had no way. It was a, it was a red, it was not a red tide. It was a, it was a toxic red tide and uh, not a red wave, not a red tsunami, but what we because we are perceived to be the victors. So the victors, so goes the spoils and the victors write the history. And we can say, no, this election was about abortion. It was about extreme Trump fatigue and to, to a less obvious a lesser, uh, somewhat lesser obvious, you know, less obviously, it was about fair districting because where, where there was fair districting, like in Michigan, Democrats ran the table. When they got fair districting, after 30 years, they finally got maps redrawn by a citizens commission, and they ran the table in Michigan, didn't they? Uh, they did fabulous in Michigan, and Michigan had great Democratic candidates, and and uh, in Lavora Barnes, one of the best organizers as well, leading the Democratic Party. They did everything possible, right? But I, I, I'm, I'm trying to get the data here. Democrats won, you know, the vast majority of the votes cast, and I don't know if it was seventy percent, but it, I mean, it's a remarkably big, uh, big number that Democrats won. Um, and so you're so right to point still, out that it, that but for gerrymandering, yeah, yeah but for gerrymandering, the results would have been very different. Yeah, where they still have gerrymandered. So it is. That's the third thing that we, people have to begin to realize. And as going forward, I think the thing to do is is present many of these, is try to get to these rural voters who are being so uh, heavily gerrymandered information they're low on information in terms of and i don't because i can't see how any of these people in rural areas benefit from any republican policies they just want to keep i mean let me just just finish it this way is the republicans and the donald the mega the, the trump mega movement 
they don't want a consensus. They would, Donald Trump would never want to be the leader of a, of a unified America where he got 70% approval rating. No, because that's not owning anybody, right? That, you, the, the MAGA movement wants to own somebody, and Donald Trump would rather have, would rather lead from a minority, just like he said, I'd rather win a court case that I didn't deserve to win than rather than win one that he, you know, absolutely should win. You know, Paul, they have a funny understanding of owning. They want to own our country the way um, Elon Musk owns Twitter, which is to say, break it. Break it just because you can. Yeah. Yeah. Because I I own it and I can break it if I want to. That's right. Yeah. Well, I I happen to think that if you own something, you actually have some stewardship in it. I mean, you don't buy a, a beautiful painting in order to destroy the artist's work, to burn it up. Right. That's that's that's, right. that's unconscionable. Right. Sell it. If that's the case, yeah, don't absolutely. burn it up. These guys buy stuff and wreck it just because it shows they have power. It's, it's yep. so boring and so um, uh, unhelpful. Anyway, thank you for calling. Thank you for listening. I look forward to uh, your podcast and hearing f- from the candidates that are going to finish the job in in Washington state. Right. Thanks a lot. Take care. OK. Roosevelt. What's on your mind? My friend. Don't believe. First of all, I want to wish you happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thank Thanksgiving you. And your family. Thank you very much. You too. I appreciate that. Um, and um, I wanted to be the opposite of uh, our friend. Uh, uh, <coughs> Paul from Seattle. Paul, yep. I wanted to uh, be the devil's advocate and go a little bit against what Paul said, but not necessarily. I'm just trying to be a smart ass here. Um, So, you went into your rants and they play them constantly on your station, which I love. I love that rant. And you were right. And you were right, and so is Jonas DeCito. Yep. that our friend from South, Southern Illinois was going to get his clock clean. Remember, Joan said that per yep. word to word. And uh, one thing that I really enjoy also about the, the whipping that he took is that Dan Prop didn't succeed in his uh, malice of, of, of spreading those uh, fake newspapers. I hate uh, Hold on for one second, Roosevelt. For those of you who are listening, there is this man, Dan Proft, and he's a Republican operative, also has a radio show, um, and he is the publisher of fake newspapers that pretend to be newspapers but send out scurrilous political crap to people's houses and doors all over the place. And Illinois was bombarded with this stuff in the last cycle. Go ahead. Yeah, so I, I take very – much pleasure in, uh, in him not succeeding. That goes to show how well-informed our voters are, too, in the state of Illinois. They don't fall for that garbage. Uh, they don't fall no. for that garbage. So no. here's the thing that I mainly called about, and that is this. I know they got a laundry, laundry list of, of, of things that they're going to do all uh, on uh, things that they didn't run on. They ran on the fact that the... Uh, Gas prices were too high. You know, they're pointing the finger always at the Democrats and the specific um, Biden, uh, the economy. 
uh, jobs, uh, inflation, crime. Uh, yeah. crime. So, so none of crime, that. None of that. Gas prices. They got nothing. 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 Zero. Exactly. All they have is Hunter exactly. Biden's laptop. That is a, that is so, all you're going to hear from these people. Yep. So the hyena. Who's the hyena? Jim Jordan. Jim the hyena Jordan. Now, yeah. Uh, so here's my question to you and to anybody that's out there that wants to answer it. You think the plan is not only, not only to point the finger at Biden's son and Biden and China, that, that uh, China filled uh, uh, Biden's pockets with millions of dollars and all of that, but also to peel away voters in case Trump is the candidate so that he could, you know what I'm saying? They could point the finger and say, wait a minute. If you guys say that Trump did this, then Biden did the same thing. You know, but, uh, you know, Trump took money from uh, NRA. Uh, so did Biden. He took money from uh, China, which they constantly. Yeah, what, about, what about what about what about? All right, everybody listening, 773-763-9278, if you want to answer Roosevelt and, and tell him whether you think the Republicans are just looking to create cover. Oh, everybody's a crook, so why don't we just reelect Donald Trump? And I'm going to close it with this, this, Double E. The guys that used to call you are calling Dan Prof. I know because I listened. I used to listen to them, and I still do from time to time. Yep. And they repeat the same things that I just said. So I was kind of spying on their show. That's exactly, I think, the idea behind uh, McCarthy and keeping. And by the way, keeping the crazies at bay because the crazies are going to go even crazier now that they got the power. You know, they got some sort of power in the house. So this guy. I don't wish him, you know, anything good when it comes down to McCarthy because he's a you know what kisser. He went you know, and kissed the ring of the of Godfather down in Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. And that's another thing. That's what makes me think of this. That's what makes me think of the plan is to whittle away or to peel away voters from Biden in case he is the candidate for any Democrat to to, to, to you know. To, to well, as you know. As, as you know, because you, you, you have talked to me about this before, I have a high degree of optimism in American voters and faith in them that when given the right information and, and given a chance to calm down just a little bit, they will generally make sound decisions. Um, and uh, we had every reason to, get our, uh, uh, to lose everything in this last election, right? The stakes could not have been higher. And we talked about that a lot last year, how high the stakes were. But but it was my thought and and a lot of people's that if we if America understood all of that, America would make a you know a better choices than anybody thought they would make. And I, I think they did. I think we, we you know we we I mean I am going into Thanksgiving. I have so much to be thankful for, Roosevelt. I mean, can you <clears throat> look I I'm going to just say it the way I would say it, right? We didn't listen to these crazies. We ran, we did what we always do. We ran a big, fair election. And throughout the campaign, 
the red glare of GOP rhetorical bombs burst in the air, right? But as we so often sing, they gave proof through the night that our flag was still there, right? And that it stands for freedom and democracy and that our democracy is still the last best hope of Earth. And I don't care what the folks at Fox Cable and the ultra MAGA rally crowd think the flag stands for. You know, they, they, they think it's a party emblem, an insignia of factional power. I mean, when I watched Donald Trump's announcement that he was running again with all those American flags wrapped around him, and I know he knows nothing about what those flags mean. You know, um, he, he, he stood up there to tell us how terrible the country is, how we're, we're being ruined by those who would rather love their neighbors than hate them. You know, um, uh, he and his crowd, he and his crowd they, they don't bother with the meaning. Of, they, they know about as much of the flag they're wrapped in as the fish knows about the newspaper he's wrapped in. They have no idea what it says. And don't believe. I'm sorry for going off on you. I'm sorry, but you know. Double E. And by the yep. way, speaking of Trump's speech, there was nothing new. It was the same thing as when you said the things about Mexicans. He pointed constantly to the border all over again. Even Fox cut away. <laughs> yeah, from the thick of it. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you know what? I mean. <laughs> Like when our country started to flirt with autocracy, most of us told ourselves we don't need to worry. And then before we knew it, there was January 6th, the Dobbs decision and election deniers running up and down the ballot. We all went from it can't happen to here to DEFCON 5. And it took about, you know, like, I mean, a blink of an eye. So I'm, I'm really proud of what we did. Yeah, so am I. So am I. And you know what? I'm going to have a real good Thanksgiving. Thanks to you and thanks to our results. Not only nationally but locally we got more bluer than we ever been before in my opinion yeah and blue has changed a little bit too it's it, it is e- even amongst democrats blue is is more focused on the lives of ordinary americans than it's been in a long time so i think we got better we didn't just get bigger and win more we got better and that that's important you know another thing that makes me happy all the pundits were wrong as far as predicting what was going to happen, this stupid red wave that they kept on saying. Uh, you know? Not me. Not me. You didn't hear no, that from I'm me. Talking about, I'm talking about the five at Fox News, including Perot. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, they're crazy. Yeah. And uh, Jesse Waters. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Dominique. Young man, have a happy Thanksgiving, and, and we, will, we will talk anon. Take care. Dave, what's on your mind this afternoon? Hey, hey, Edwin. Uh, as I was said, I have a happy Thanksgiving next week to you and the family. And uh, um, like I was just telling Paul, the, there's a story. This is a, a four-year-old story, mind you, but it was in the L.A. Times. And it was where House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy's family benefited from U.S. program for minorities based on disputed ancestry. So, and it, it the company was Vortex Construction, who's whose principal owner was William Wages, brother of McCarthy's wife, Judy. And back then, they had received a total of $7.6 million in no bid and other prime federal contracts since 2000. And well, the company, yeah. pardon? Yeah, I don't know anything about that. I'll look into it, but it's interesting. Um, 
I mean, if I, they I hope fight I, fire, you fight fight fire with fire. I mean, they're bringing up old yeah, stuff I, on the. I think think we have to respond in kind, but I don't want to fight fire with fire in the same way. I would rather we do what we did. We do our jobs for the American people and we and we call them out for their ridiculous nonsense. And where there's a you know, where they've crossed the line, the Justice Department does its job and holds people accountable. If we waste all our time behaving like them, you know, we haven't done anybody a service. So I appreciate you bringing it up and I appreciate knowing about it and I will look into it, but, but I don't want to fight fire with fire. And it's not sort of like the Obama, they go low, we go high. I, I just want to go do the job, you know, and a lot of what we talk about here is how hard governing is and how we need to get it done for the American people, whether it's in a little one ward in Chicago or across the whole country or thinking about global issues like climate it's hard work, and we need to do it. And if they want to spend their time on Hunter's laptop, we can go at them. I mean, they're as corrupt as you know as anybody, and we could spend our time on that. And I think we should, you know, hold them to account. But let's not lose sight of what we're in government to do. All right, well, if nothing, I'll start pushing them to have them show their health care bill now. Now that they're yeah, right, yeah. Let's see. You know, oh, don't, please don't hold your breath. <laughs> You know, the last time it was, what, in two weeks, we're going to see it. So, uh, well. Yeah, along with their infrastructure bill and everything else. They don't have it. (laughs) Hopefully they'll remember that by 2024. Well, we'll remind them every day. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate it. All right. Be well. Be well. Thanksgiving. Yep. Jacob, I think you're going to get the last word today. JW. Yes, sir. Uh, you were talking about Dan Prof's ads being scurrilous, and I've seen the one on the commercial, and all it did was show video of a woman being mugged in broad daylight. What's scurrilous about that? Okay. I, I don't want to speak to one ad um, that he had on the, the TV ad. The newspaper that got sent to people's homes was filled with nonsense. And as, And by the way, this isn't the first cycle he's done it. It's an old habit. Right. He, he gets uh, campaign money to print a fake newspaper, to pretend he's a journalist, to give credibility to campaign, mostly lies. Um, uh, and it's a tactic. I, you know, I get it. But Chicagoans where and people all over Illinois, people, well, I should say people all over America. There's like we get a lot of advertising directed at us. We're pretty savvy consumers. You know, we know. Uh, we have a high detector for nonsense. And so we looked at it, and I think some people were like, oh, my, he beats his wife or he's, he's responsible. for you know." But we hear this all the time. I mean, the Republicans' leadership is once again saying that the president of the United States is somehow involved in human trafficking, you know, just utter nonsense. And, and I know it's highly emotional, and it grabs people. That's something they care about. But for gosh sakes, people have tough lives. They need the government to do its job. And if that's all we're going to spend the time on, man, no good. Not for anybody. Well, I think that a lot of people are concerned when the the border's not being enforced. We have upwards of 3 million people have crossed this this inauguration. Where are these people going and who's going to support? You're making a good point here, a very good point. We need to pass immigration laws. And you know what? We came close to passing them back when when uh, 
W was president. But then, then we had something called Citizens United and unlimited dark money started to pour to Republican candidates and people who had supported John McCain, the Republican and his work to create finally a good immigration law, they backed off because of all the dark money pouring at them, saying, you know what, let's just make it an issue in politics instead. So instead of solving the problem, and we have, I agree with you, we have an immigration problem. I totally agree. Totally agree. There's a lot of dark money on both sides. Only one side wants to keep it legal. Only one side, because the John Lewis bill would have put a crimp in that. You know what? And would have tried to, and, and, and it's a Supreme Court that is illegitimate, that opened the floodgates, and those are all Republican nominees that went that path against every well, opinion. Just... So, so I, you and I can disagree, and I'm happy, you know, I'm happy that you listen. I'm happy that we have this kind of dialogue. But, you know, we have to say there are so many really important issues, and immigration is one. We need to fix it. Yeah. We need to fix it by not well, by the, I'll, I'll just... the president's got limited hands here. Congress needs to do its job. Well, I'll just say this in, in, in part. Uh, the people of Venezuela never thought they'd end up where they were today. But this is what happens when the people lose sight of the freedoms that we've earned and that we hold dear and we take for I granted. I agree with you. We will end up like Venezuela if we keep down this road of socialism and progressivism and leftism or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> There's no free lunch. Somebody has I- to I, I, I totally agree with that, and I don't think we're on that road, by the way. I don't believe we're on that road. I think we're on a road of, of loving thy neighbor and taking care of each other. Um, and uh, even while we're trying the government to do it, the rich-poor divide gets bigger and bigger, so we need to have, do a better job. Anyway, I hear the music in the background. I wish you a happy Thanksgiving and everyone who's listening a happy Thanksgiving.